0: Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast. I'm Hitzeer. I'm Issa. Uh We have a big announcement for you this month. We're now up on YouTube.
1: YouTube.
0: That's right. You can, you can, well, I mean, you can't watch us, but you can, li- <laughs> you can listen to us on YouTube. And, and I do understand that a lot of people find it a lot more convenient to listen to podcasts on youtube as i do myself you know i listen to audio on youtube you know Mm -hmm. Uh, most of the time like i'm I'm not even on the browser i'm not watching the faces talking i'm just listening to them and youtube is such a a much more convenient uh, avenue for you to listen to us and and that's why we've decided to go on youtube right now because like I, i don't know about you but most of my listening happens on youtube what about you man
1: um, I think the majority of the time it really depends on the kind of content uh mm-hmm. that I'm listening to. But YouTube is definitely superior in terms of when I'm on my laptop or my desktop. Yeah. So just it's a lot easier to have that kind of running in the background than say MixCloud, for example, or even Spotify sometimes, right? Like they don't necessarily um make sense. But if I'm on the move though, then YouTube isn't as convenient because you can't most phones won't allow you to like um have your phone on idle while you're listening to stuff on YouTube. Unless That's you right. Unless you play for premium, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that is what our Mixcloud is for. Um, the General Equality channel still remains the same. You know, our our home base is still Mixcloud. You can find all our uploads and archives on the genre Equality channel Mixcloud. Uh, but, you know, now we have the added option of YouTube, which I think makes things uh, a lot easier for some people. So it gives you a couple of options to to check us out. As well, you know, we're yep. on SGCR2 so you can check out their Twitch channel for all our episodes so we have mm-hmm. a bunch of different options out there so whatever is your poison of choice go for it man
1: yep so uh, yeah we'll be posting the link together with an, um, together with this episode so go check that out um, all our archival stuff is also there or if it's not there it will be up soon
0: yeah uh, anyways
1: yeah. and then kind of moving forward we'll see if we want to do anything special for YouTube but right now it's just want to give you guys a bit more access to what we're doing just mm-hmm. make it a bit easier
0: yeah um and i've always wanted to say this uh like follow subscribe uh to our youtube channel
1: <laughs> yeah we should we should definitely start uh ending our episodes with that uh from here on end so we'll see how that goes
0: <laughs> seriously like uh, the the liked videos really helps us gain visibility on youtube that definitely helps you know and of course follow us uh click the little bell for notification updates you know we, we we have three episodes a month these times. Um, we, we do Behold, Fortnightly," nightly. And of course, our monthly flagship show, Journal Equality, is once, once per month. And this one, Journal Equality 41, Again, headlined by a big Disney Plus MCU mm-hmm. show, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Big <laughs> one as well. Uh, plus, we'll be talking about uh, Invincible on Amazon Prime. Yep. Infinity Train, the fourth and final season on HBO Max. Shadow and Bone, the new YA fantasy on Netflix right now. Alongside For All Mankind, an alt history show on Apple TV. We'll be talking about Mortal Kombat uh, later on as well. Alongside, you know, a bunch of other shows, I'll, I'll talk about Yasuke. Thunder Force, Vem, Made for Love, uh, the new season of The Handmaid's Tale, which mm-hmm. I got a little preview thanks to Hulu. Uh, they sent me a, a few episodes to review, so oh, I'm nice. going to do that here. Uh, Isa is going to be following up on the Way of the House Husband. We discussed the manga at length on our Behold episode, so you can go check that out if you just want to you know, listen to our thoughts on the manga. Uh, this will be our thoughts on the anime specifically. And yep. right at the end, We'll be talking about uh the new Joss Whedon show HBO, and I'm gonna tie it in with how like I'm sort of like reevaluating my my Joss Whedon fandom uh mm-hmm. for forced to reckon with like you know my my previously undying love for for the creator uh amidst the, the allegations that have come out you know via um the Buffy cast, the uh, charisma Carpenter, obviously most vocally Ray Fisher from mm-hmm. uh the from Justice League uh and I'll tie that all together about how it has like affected my feelings for the Nevers, which is uh. I mean taking everything out of context It's just an okay show also So yeah. you know, But but like The, the bad uh, The bad vibes does, it Doesn't help me w- Want to continue with it Like you know I mean? But I'll, I'll talk yeah. about that later Let's begin With uh, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier Or a- as he has been renamed In the finale Captain America yeah. And the Winter Soldier mm-hmm. um, This is the second ever MCU series on Disney Plus uh, And the execution Is as different as can be From WandaVision And yet yeah. It is no less compelling It is set <laughs> Um, a few months post endgame uh, uh the the falcon and the winter soldier um originally built as a buddy cop comedy a uh, a lethal weapon type show featuring sam wilson and bucky barnes as mismatched partners and to a large extent it is you know and it's a delight because anthony Mackie and sebastian stantz uh intensely endearing uh oddball chemistry uh mm-hmm. it's so it's so winning you know um and yet the falcon and the winter soldier is also so much more um ostensibly The show is about Sam's hesitancy to take up the heavy legacy of the Captain America shield uh, and alongside Bucky dealing with his guilt, PTSD uh, and trauma from being a brainwashed Hydra assassin for the better part of the last century. So those topics in themselves would have made for a very good show. Mm. Uh, but what makes this not a good show, but a very good show, is its ability to use those character arcs as lenses in which to view very complex, very murky, geopolitical realities in the MCU in a, in a post-blip world, you know. Yeah. Um, in keeping with the grounded political thriller vibes of the Captain America films. Uh, the show is also a grounded political thriller exploration of why eh, Thanos was probably right. Um, <laughs> and, and most impressively, the show digs up uh, deep cuts from the comics. You know, um, you, got, you, got, you got deep cut characters like Flag Smashers, uh, mm. well, the Flex Masher now has been rebranded into a terrorist group called The Flex Mashers. Yeah. Uh we have US Agent, we got Battlestar, we got Dr. Wilfred Nagel, we got Isaiah and Eli Bradley, uh who is the future patriot. We got the power broker, we got Contessa Valentina, aka Madame Hydra, uh played by Julia Louis Dreyfus. Uh, we got a gender swap Carl Morgenfowl, now known as Kali Morgenfowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and all these characters are updated to cohesively tackle uh, the new weighty themes that are timely in the world. Um, at the core of the Falcon and the Winter Soldier's uh, themes is the idea of legacy, outdated symbols, uh, whether nationalism is really a noble thing, and whether returning to normal is even something to strive for if the status quo was so broken in the first place. You know, yeah. This is a show about whether a black man can be Captain America, and it, it, it tackles that um, very well. Um, we are gonna break down the show into various different points. You know, I'm not gonna do like <laughs> this is a very like meaty show, so I'm I'm yeah. gonna, I'm 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 gonna bring up one point and then you know like Isa is gonna talk about that. So we'll we'll tackle it point by point. now, but in the beginning, you know, let's get your overall thoughts on the show before we delve into the various aspects of it. You know, uh, what do you think about Captain uh Captain America uh and the Winter Soldier or Falcon and the Winter Soldier?
1: I, I love it. I think this is the most fun I've had um uh, with with a Marvel franchise in quite a while. Yep. Right, like totally different uh, breed from what we got with Vision, yep, which was fun in and of itself, right? Uh, I think going into this, uh, I was given what we got with with WandaVision, I was thinking going into Falcon and Winter Soldier, it was going to be a lot more MCU, um, than, than you know, something like an alternative to that, right? Uh, it's going to be cut from the same cloth as we got from the movies. Now, mm-hmm. while I wasn't wrong about that, uh, I do feel like the long-formness of the series mm-hmm. does allow it to take much more deeper um, and a much more nuanced look into the world of the MCU, mm-hmm. uh, especially post-Blip. Uh, and I enjoyed that thoroughly. I, do, I mean, it's not a perfect show by, by any measure, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but it definitely does a lot of things good. And it's just so much fun. Like that, yeah. I think that's kind of the main thing, right? Like it's just so much fun, and I can understand why you know everybody is kind of like um, uh, talking about it and all of that, just because there's so many good things to, to to be hung up about, right? Like whether you're talking about the very kind of good character progression of our two main protagonists across six episodes, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a very compelling antagonist, you know, uh, and anytime you, uh, a TV character starts getting death threats, you know, like they're kind of yeah. off to something. Yeah. Shout out to Wyatt Russell. Yeah. Uh And um, just having, uh, you know, some interesting things, tying up some loose ends, answering some questions, bringing out questions uh, that should be answered but they didn't answer, you know, and ultimately kind of setting up what we're going to be getting in Captain America 4, mm-hmm. uh, which they announced at the end of the series. Yes. So all in all, I think, like, there's a ton of things to kind of, for us to kind of discuss and a lot of things that I'm a, a fan of. I, I do feel like... Uh, There'll be things that will be nitpicking on, mm-hmm. um, particularly in terms of, like, they did so much with a lot of, like, kind of, like, the side characters or the new characters that they, they've they introduced. Yeah. Uh, but there's some characters in particular that just can't catch a break. Uh, mm-hmm. Sharon Carter, I'm looking at you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but we'll get in, into all of that. But all in all, I had so much fun with this. I was looking forward to watching it every week. Uh, mm-hmm. It was kind of the highlight of my week for the yeah. last six weeks. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, like, we continue to kind of move forward in this vein, right, with what we got with WandaVision uh, and with Falcon and Winter Soldier. I, I don't know if they're going to keep that name, but, um, like, I'm super happy to see uh, what's laid out at first for the rest of the year. Because we've got, like, nonstop hits from Disney all the way to the end of the year, right?
0: Oh, 100%. We've got a bunch of movies. The Shang-Chi trailer just came out. The Eternals coming soon. Uh Spider-Man yeah. No Way Home. We got Loki. We got Hawkeye. Uh, we got the Modoc show coming next month, you know. So a bunch of stuff uh coming out of MCU, you know, making up for lost time from the mm. uh, all, all, all the stuff that you know happened in COVID last year. Plus Black Widow. We haven't even talked about Black Widow yet. You That's know? true. Yeah. Um the first thing that probably should be talked about and and the, the headliner uh, for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier is uh Sam Wilson, you know, uh, yeah. the new Captain America. In Sam's case, his hesitancy to take up the Captain America mantle has more to do than just the considerable shadow that Steve Rogers left behind. Although that's certainly a big part of it, you know, we see the day to day realities of Sam uh, as a black man living in America, you know, from, from being unable to secure a loan to help with yeah. the shrimping business to being stopped in the streets by the cops for the crime of being angry in public while black, uh, which mirrors so many controversies of black celebrities being harassed by cops only for the cops to suddenly realize that the black person is famous. Yeah. You know, um, so many, uh, so much footage of that has, has, has popped up recently and in, in previous years. So, I mean, what would have happened if they weren't famous? Well, you can probably guess. Um, Sam subconsciously understands uh, that becoming the symbol of a country that is so rooted in racial injustice, uh, imperialism and supremacy in so many forms, it just doesn't sit right. And he doesn't know how to articulate it. Until Isaiah does it for him. Isaiah Mm. Bradley, you know. Um, Sam is grappling with the legacy of the symbol... And his decision to finally accept the shield, uh, is, is a powerful arc, like, and probably the most potent arc of the show. He's reminded never to forget the past, but, um, as he sees, you know, we see a scene of his nephews innocently playing the shield. I think, like, that he, he's convinced uh, not to be stuck in the past either, but yeah. not forgetting it at the same time. You know, be the change you want to see, as they say. Uh, and this ties in nicely with Isaiah Bradley, a character from the comics, uh, who was America's first black super soldier. Um, but he was treated vastly differently from Steve despite Mm. his story being nearly identical on purpose, you know, in order to recreate the super soldier serum. Black soldiers were were tested upon, many of whom died. Uh, this is kind of intentionally reminiscent of the real-life uh, Tuskegee study where the US government secretly infected black people with syphilis to, to see the disease's effects, you know. That, yeah. that, that's a real thing that happened in real life. Go Wikipedia it, guys. Um, and, and when they did find a test subject that took to the serum and served his country valiantly in Korea, he wasn't revered like CAP. Instead, he was locked up and further tested, te- and further tested upon, like a that Brad. So this is a powerful reminder that becoming the symbol of America isn't necessarily desirable, especially if you're a black man. You know. What are your yeah. thoughts on how Captain America tackled the racial issues here?
1: I think it was a good. Um, I the approach was good, right? Like it it was something that a lot of people. Um, okay, so when they announced Sam Wilson was going to be the new Captain America uh, in in the comics, right? Like oh the furor that was that was kind of crazy. So I I think um going into Falcon and Winter Soldier, um the show creators already knew beforehand what the reaction was going to be like, especially for people who don't read the comics, right? Mm-hmm. So introducing something big like that to have a black man wear wear the stars and stripes and to carry the shield, you know, is yeah. going to cause a certain amount of of um. It's going to shake the pot a bit, right? Mm. Um, I, I think like the way that it got set up was was good. I, I think in w- the way in which they tried to, uh, resolve that by bringing Isaiah Bradley, who is for all intents and purposes a very very deep cut from the comics, right? Like he just gets his story told in what a couple of, the short run on um, um, red, white, and black. Is it or red, white, yeah, and black? It-
0: yeah, uh, it's a mini series, *Red White and Black*.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's a very rare, not not many people know that there was a there was a black super soldier involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, for them to kind of like un- uh, push aside everything, unearth that, and bring it into a very very important part of one of the the running themes of of the show, uh, it's so well done. Right, like there is so much that Sam needs to confront, uh, not just within himself, but also uh, in terms of when he confronts Isaiah, when he sits in front of Isaiah to, to talk about these things and to address these things about the legacy of, of um, black men being exploited by you know the military and the, and the government mm-hmm. and by the country itself. Um, those moments are so key right, and so important to forming um, his eventual taking out of the mantle. Yep. Right, because he he needs to understand. Like it, it's clear that he feels a great deal, mm. right, about the idea of taking on Steve's uh, mantle, uh, mm. as does Bucky, right? Yeah. Um, but he doesn't really resolve that without constant interactions with other people who have felt uh, the weight of that legacy in different ways. Mm-hmm. Right, so on on the one hand, you've got you know uh, couples therapy <laughs> with, uh, Bucky, with, yeah. with Bucky, right, uh, and you know like a lot of kind of like deep truth that that Bucky has to 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 share, right? Uh, uh, albeit cutting, yep, and and extremely sarcastic at times, um, because they both both Bucky and Isaiah Bradley suffer from a very different kind of impact uh, mm-hmm. from what. Sam Wilson is, is um, dealing with when it comes to like taking up the mantle itself. Yeah. Uh, all in all, I mean like things that you know you would kind of expect uh, with everything that's been going on in real life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think they portrayed it uh, well. I think they portrayed it um, with with good nuance mm-hmm. uh, while at the same time just kind of addressing that within the world of the MCU and the fact that these are you know, many of them are superpowered people mm-hmm. uh, but you know the odds are still stacked against black superheroes right Mm -hmm. uh and i think this is something that is very important for them to kind of address now and i'm glad they took the time to address it here i there's i don't i can't think of a storyline that is more apt for them to to bring this up right Mm -hmm. and then kind of moving forward uh with all the plans that they have uh given that young avengers we're going to have a whole like very diverse cast of people there as well uh and Including just
0: uh, eli bradley uh is probably mm,
1: yeah uh, eli bradley we've got kamala khan as well mm-hmm. right like moving in that direction especially phase four and beyond i think it's extremely important that these things are addressed and kind of like um well not dealt with per se right but are, are addressed so that you open doors for for more diversity you open doors for more nuance and and more kind of like real world reflections of, of of things like that, right? Like, superheroes aren't ever created in a vacuum. They're always a reflection of the time in which they were created. Yeah. Uh, and I think that Falcon and Winter Soldier has done a great job on that front, for sure.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Definitely, you know. They they set up a situation where uh, I mean, uh, all storytelling is emotional manipulation, and you need it to be emotionally manipulated, at least for the people who didn't want Sam to be uh, Captain America, you need to see why he doesn't want to be Captain America, and then you need yep. to root for him, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. And this was the perfect way that they could they could do that, you know? Um, and of course, taking over from Sam's mantle is uh, Torres, who is also the future Falcon in the comics, so yep. we know where that's going. Uh, <laughs> going from Black America to White America, uh, one of the most fascinating aspects of uh, Falcon and with the Soldier is Wyatt Russell's uh, superb performance as John Walker, the, mm. the new Captain America and future US agent. Uh, he is, by all accounts, an exceptional soldier and starts off as a decent yet flawed human being, earnestly trying to live up to the Captain America mantle that yep. he was handed. By the government. Um, it would have been easy to paint him as a, as a cartoon evil villain. Uh, people already wanted to hate him before they knew him. You know, <laughs> yeah, he's not Cap, I get it. Uh, but instead, this take on Walker is, is a lot more nuanced. He represents an otherwise decent person who just does not recognize, uh, to many extents, uh, his white privilege. And at, at the same time, is also burdened by PTSD and impossible expectations yeah. uh, John is an okay dude but he's entitled uh, he refuses to accept accountability and his manhood is fragile in a way that uh, only a straight white guy can be uh, plus you know he's already so damaged and warped by America's military industrial complex you know mm-hmm. uh, it's a topic that, ha- that they haven't really touched on the MCU That is uh, since the Punisher you know he is, he is the tool that the US government built and they discarded him for doing exactly what they trained him to be when he's confronted for the first time by people who are superior than him. Uh, he becomes violently insecure. Mm. Uh, John Walker is not inherently evil. He is not a white supremacist, nor is he racist. But, but that doesn't mean that dark things cannot manifest from his damaged psyche. Uh, when he snaps, the show does a good job of letting us see where he's coming from. And we feel for him even... Uh, it, you know like we see his friend get murdered and, and everything you know um as much as we resent him for obvious reasons we we feel for him too um yeah. and a, a, at least the smart discerning viewers can feel for him too, you know, not the you know stupid, toxic ones that said uh the actor death threats, you know those are yeah clearly dumb people um in a in a larger context though John Walker is actually the best, most apt symbol for what modern America really is mm-hmm. uh just uh, just as Steve Rogers it was an apt single. It Was an apt symbol for what America imagines itself to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Um John Walker, <laughs> basically the, the insecure white man uh and, and with the blood on his shield is the most potent metaphor for modern America. Um how do you think uh White Russell and John Walker tied into the themes of the show and, and did you like how it was done?
1: Yeah, I, I think um this this uh, incarnation of of John Walker, right? Uh, of U.S. or uh, well, no, the now U.S. agent is yeah. definitely a cleaner approach than what happened in the comic books itself, mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Because in there, he's like a he's like a pro wrestler first, and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, but I, I do feel like it's much more clean cut. It much it makes it much easier to understand where he's coming from and the reasons for for his decisions and 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 you know his actions as well uh without kind of confusing the audience with a lot of history that isn't necessary from the comic books uh so yep. i definitely did like that uh, i do I, I i did enjoy very much the fact that they took the time to humanize him at points right mm-hmm. uh every time that he's you know sitting in a locker room with with uh, a yeah you know, and they're just talking about very real things, or even like the very quiet kind of tender moments with his wife. Mm. Uh, I, I think those are important things that we never get to see in the comics, right? Like in the comics, he's a much more—it's a much more clear-cut uh, anti, uh, anti-hero, anti-hero, yeah. uh, anti-villain. I mean, he kind of swaps between the two from time to time, so you don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and um being able to see that definitely helps although it seems like there's still a lot of people who, who didn't get the point of those scenes mm-hmm. uh, for you to kind of understand that um, you know uh, uh, um, Dr. Abraham Erskine's words um, really kind of ring true right like at the end of the day it, it brings out more who you are yeah. you know and that's kind of like uh, uh, thematically something that has gone on for all the episodes here in, in Falcon and with the Soldier yeah um, yeah it was, I, I mean, really, like, Wyatt Russell's done a great job. He's such a hateable character when he's got the mask on, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it just opens up like a lot of like great moments just for the quips itself. Um, the three way standoff, um, with with him and, and Bucky and Sam was a fantastic fight. Mm-hmm. You know, he does bring the right physical presence and the right kind of like brooding and like. Entitledness to the character, you know? Um, But at the same time, you just kind of can't help but feel for him, right? Like, Mm -hmm. even though his his, uh, misguided entitlement to the cap title, um, you know, the whole, like, making his own shield and shit. um, Or even, like, when he's bestowed with the US agent costume and title itself, right? Like, Mm -hmm. the, the joy that you see there you know it feels very real, it feels very genuine and you gotta kind of ask yourself like why is it he feels that way and and you you really have to kind of dig into you know um the kind of life you have to live as as like an elite soldier right who's who's mm-hmm. who's used to you know not taking much of the credit and you know um having to face all sorts of um things on the battlefield itself so i I guess um in short like i really enjoyed his performance like so easy to hate uh that's hard to do sometimes right uh yeah. but at the same time um you know being able to show us the breadth of the character in such a mm-hmm. short period of time because he doesn't really get that much screen time right no, um yeah. is actually like spot on performance
0: yeah yeah um the next point that i want to hit the show also delves into the consequences of the blip globally, uh, yep. more in-depth than Vision did, more in-depth than what Endgame did, you know. We see that during those years, the five years, the world has become a more open and inclusive place. Uh, borders were open, jobs, food, housing and other resources were plentiful. People were united to help each other rebuild. You know, Plus, as Steve mentioned in Endgame, right, the, the environment is finally starting to heal. Yeah. But after Endgame, when people returned, while yes, that is a good thing, um, it also caused the world to go back to normal. Uh, the state school of nationalism and tribalism and corruption in fact you know was the normal it caused a a massive new global refugee crisis and yeah. an economic crisis uh, many people who weren't blipped were de- were displaced uh, they're, they're holed up right now in in shabby refugee camps as the world deals with nationalities ownership of property and other things you know it's it's a, it's a minefield to, to untangle uh meanwhile the people who did come back, like Sam, they face financial difficulties due to lack of work and lack of income. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the infrastructure in place to help these people, the Global Repatriation Council or the GRC, uh, is corrupt because something like that inevitably will be due to, due to human nature and human greed. Uh, yeah. in, res- in response to this, the show's more morally grey primary antagonists uh, show up, you know, which is beside uh, John Walker. Uh, the, the real antagonists are Carly Morgenthau and the Flag Smashers, who are either Freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on your perspective, you know they're they're fighting for the displaced people on yeah. the margins who are unable to get aid from the GRC They believe that the world was better during the blip, and perhaps they are right. Uh, they steal medicine and supplies for the camps, you know. That's one thing. Uh, but where it gets murkier is their tactics. They've they've taken the super soldier serum. They've begun to use violent force, which includes firebombing innocent people. Um, the flag smashers are such fascinating antagonists because, like John Walker, they're not clear. cut villains you know um what do you think about the flag smashes as the villains of the show uh
1: i think in general we didn't get any villains in this pro right yeah Um, yeah. and and i think that's very very important no matter what how you flip it you know whether you want to see walker as as you know flawed kind of like hero wannabe um you know or or zemo as just kind of like a, a tag along like former villain yeah. Um like it's very hard to to kind of distinguish that. I I think with Kali and, and the flag smashers, um it's, it's summed up basically by you know, um her um there's there's this line that she says that, that like um I mean call us terrorists all you want, but it really depends on whose side you're on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and at the end of the day, I mean it goes back to the one person's uh, freedom fighters, another person's terrorists. Yeah. Um their goal uh, and and what they're trying to do, I think for all intents and purposes is a normal one mm-hmm. um and they are resorting to violence because there isn't um violence is what is available to them
0: yeah, they have no option right
1: yeah they have no option and violence is what is uh, available to them in the fact that you know uh they got them they get their hands on the super serum via the power broker and uh courtesy of nagel um you know and the thing is, is that that okay? So, the the serum has, with the exception of Steve, right, has always provided a way to violence, right? Like yeah. it's it's all it's been traditionally that for every single super vo- uh, soldier in the Marvel universe, with yeah. the exception of Steve Rogers himself, yeah. Uh, unless you count Hydra Cap, which we won't talk about, yeah. <laughs> right, uh, and it is not surprising at all um, that the flag smashes. Uh, tend to that as well, right? Because at the end of the day, the whole point is that the serum brings out more of who you are more than anything else, mm. right? So all the good intention that Kali has, which we see very uh, clearly in the beginning, you know, um, and, and and can definitely empathize with, like, kind of degenerates as it goes along, right? Yeah. Where the compromises continue to be made as she starts to realize that um, she is as... She, even with the super serum, she is still powerless. Yep. Against this grand kind of machine uh that has returned after the blip. Mm. Right. Um and so it it, it I, I do feel that they did a better job in the first half of the series with mm-hmm. explaining the motivation and even clarifying some of the compromises that she's willing to take. And mm-hmm. a lot of that just kind of gets subsumed in the the forward movement of the plot in yeah. general, um, especially going into the third act, which is understandable. Uh, Mm. But I wish they had a bit more time to kind of deal with that as Mm. well, you know. Um, For for it to be wrapped up by Sam's speech to the politicians at the end, right? Mm. Like Kali's entire arc to be wrapped up there is touching, Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't feel like it's enough. Mm. You know what I mean? It feels grandstanding at the end of the day just because um, we see... uh, Kali only as human for half of the series, right? Yeah. And in addition to that, I do feel like the rest of her her crew, the rest of the flag smashers, like they don't get enough um, screen time or lines to to really contribute to the idea of of their 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 goals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the one that spoke the most volumes at the end of the day is the kind of support they are getting from everyday people on the ground, right? Yeah. Who support their cause, which is which is great, but I don't know if um Kali's story and what they were trying to say with the blim and all that kind of gets lost amidst so many things that are going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know, with Zemo and with Sharon and with with um Walker and all of that. Yeah. Um yeah. So I, I don't know if they could have done it any differently within six episodes. Yeah. Uh, I just think it's a bit of a waste. Um you know, uh, it, it 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 there was a point in time in which it felt the flex matches felt like a convenient way to address post blip politics without mm. necessarily dealing with the nitty-gritty of that those consequences right yeah um, yeah i'm
0: i'm i'm going i'm going to talk about the finale uh, a little bit later it's probably the weakest episode in 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 the show um yeah. sam's grandstanding as you talk about which is part of the finale um really speaks to what Kali was saying in the beginning a lot of people like to say shit but it, you know yep. is anything ever really done you know yep. like what happens at the end of the Falcon of the Myths it's like what happens at the end of like every fantasy epic where, <laughs> where, where some some noble king is like yes I'm going to end the wars and, and injustice but how yeah um, you know, and, and the devil really took the time to deal with it, la. So like I don't know if that is the real right way to honor Kali's legacy because yeah. you know, you know, you might just be like doing what every other politician has done. La. you say you're gonna fix it, you say you're gonna be more inclusive, you say you're gonna listen to people, but really are you you know? Um, and uh, which leads to the, the idea, I, I, the other big theme of the show, uh, which is the idea of you know, economic, political, racial, or physical power who wields them, who yeah. wants them, and mm-hmm. who's subjugated by them. It leads to the show's other big theme, which, which is radicalization, uh, which extends to so many other characters besides Kali, besides John Walker, yeah. um, including Baron Zemo, too, um, who actually kind of stole the show in a dance <laughs> sport, or, or, or in episode three. Um, yeah. <clears throat> like, we understand his stance on super soldiers because of what happened to his own country of Sokovia and he is adamant that superpowers leads to many forms of supremacy and he's probably mostly right because how many people in the world are like Steve Rogers and how many people are like Great Skull as it is you know Um, probably a lot more of the latter Um, Kali, Zemo, John Walker and many others they're thinking in terms of absolutes which again leads to tribalization leads to radicalization you know each radicalized faction is looking out for their own and not for each other. Uh, They each make valid points while their motivations are justified. You know, it's... it's A lot more morally and politically murky than I thought the show was going to be, and I I think I think Falcon and Winter Soldier did a good job with that, while fumbling at the end point, But for the most part, I think it really did uh, a good job, you know, like the scheme of radicalization. Did you expect it to be like the theme of Captain America uh, of Falcon Falcon and Winter Soldier?
1: Oh no, no, I really didn't think that they would go in that direction. Yeah, Uh, it is definitely surprising, and I think if, if anything, what. I am most impressed by is the fact that the themes that they did want to kind of tackle, right? Very um, yeah. Are very today. Are very today, yeah. but are very even across the board mm-hmm. for all the characters, right? Yeah. Um, so, just like you mentioned with with the whole idea of regularization, you've got Kali, you've got FlexMashes, you've got Zemo, you've got Walker who all face their own, I mean, all go through some form of regularization, right? Like, due to the events that happen in their life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and then again, you know the ideas of legacy. Zemo has it his with his his father and yep. his country and all of that. Um, kind of mirroring what's going on with Sam. Same thing for with with Bucky as well. And I that the fact that these themes are kind of weaved throughout all the characters in, in a pretty even way is impressive yeah. because most of the time, what happens is that you get one character to shoulder that entire theme for the duration of the story. Yeah, uh, and that definitely makes it a lot. Easier and a lot more clean cut, but the fact that you get that over and over again in every individual story makes it a lot more clearer, a lot more salient in in terms of what you're trying to say and mm-hmm. try and put forward. Um, but yeah, the whole um, I I did not think uh, when it first leaked that they were going to be doing flag smashes, right? Yeah, uh, I really didn't think that it would take the the tone or the form that we saw in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I thought it was going to be a bit more clear cut, right? Uh, mm-hmm. In that particular manner. So for it to have a lot more freedom fighter, um, you know, kind of underground railroad feel to it was refreshing, right? Mm-hmm. I I didn't think that we would get that just because it's more difficult. It's more difficult to deal with, right? There's a lot more of you know, ambigu- moral ambiguity that you need to kind of navigate through for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and given that this was only going to be the second kind of um, series from Disney. And it's like a straight-up action thing as opposed to what we call one WandaVision, right? Mm-hmm. It would be tempting to take the easy way out, you know, uh, knock out the big scenes, give us all the, the setup that we want for the future stuff and then kind of move on from there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do really enjoy the way that they approach that, right? Uh, and yeah. the fact that all of it sits within this amazing kind of like, spy, political thriller, more of what we got from from Captain America and The Winter Soldier, yeah. uh, the movie. Um really, really just like hits the spot for me.
0: Yeah. But the, the days of shows like 24 where they portray all radicals as villains uh it's gone. You know, you, you you need to now understand why why people are radicalized and, and what are the steps that you can take yeah. uh into helping them in the future to to de radicalize them. You know, how can you make things better for everyone and not just for the people who are being attacked from from either side, like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um next up let's talk about what I want to call miscellaneous, the, the smaller <laughs> subplots in, in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We deal yeah. with B- Bucky's guilt and PTSD. Uh, we have the Wakandan Dora Millarge hunting Zemo for the murder of their king. Uh, oh, we deal yeah. with what happened to Sharon Carter after Winter Soldier, you know. Uh-huh. She's become just as delusioned with the myth of America and, hero- and heroism and the established status quo, by the way, you know? you know, because she remains a fugitive and nobody bothered to help her, which kind of leads to uh, the big twist at the end, which, you know, everybody saw coming, but Okay. Yeah. Um, we we are introduced to the criminal sanctuary of Madripoor, which is the second big X-Men reference that uh, the shows have dropped uh, subsequently. We yeah, got yeah. Taurus is going to be the next Falcon, you know, of all of these things, right? Like, uh, what stood out to you the, the most and why?
1: Oh, uh, Madripoor for sure, right? Yeah. Uh, also because of where we are located. Yeah. Yeah, because canonically, Madripoor is just right next to us uh Indonesia yeah yeah right uh and and i mean i i, I don't want to go too much into the, like the whole history of madrepore and all of that uh but it is a fascinating look um at what i think they want to do by broadening the world that way mm. right for all you know right um, um mr james Howlett is somewhere on that island while um yeah. you know Falcon and all of that are trancing around for all you know you know uh, jessica is there as well um <laughs> So it's interesting for that. Uh I didn't really see a lot of Asians on Madripo for some reason. Which was Well, oh, it is a
0: in, international uh, criminal century, uh, so they're
1: more yeah, yeah, but still, you know, like um it's it's something that they do portray in the comics at the end of the mm-hmm. day, right? Like the power structure that is very much localized despite its international kind of uh infamy. Um, but yeah, so just one of the things. Um I I think that's gonna be a fascinating Um proposition moving forward in the MCU because you finally kind of have this hub for where the criminals go, which we haven't had uh yet. Like everybody has to go and find their own kind of like like secret hiding place. I have a evil base somewhere, you know, yeah. that's hidden in the mountains and all of that. But we finally kind of have a better look at what the international criminal society's power structure looks like mm. uh, and what and and you know the the logistics and functioning of that which is I think is kind of very key to understanding some of the characters they might want to include in the future right yeah um, so Maripo is the biggest one for me um, Torres is is kind of fun right mm. like a kind of wink wink nod nod to that they, uh, basically yeah, yeah but I mean it's very far from his actual comic book kind of origins which I'm fine with because that was like bizarre as hell um, but I think it would be cool for sure right um, for that to kind of go out. Uh, I think Torres did play a fairly large uh, role in the Felcap, um arc when mm-hmm. when it was still there and uh, I think it's kind of important that um, Sam gets all the support that he can get because I don't think Bucky will be around um, that much like by his side uh, if we go into kind of like season two and onwards, you know,
0: or, or Captain America fall, I'm not sure whether like they're just transitioning it into the movies right now with Captain America fall, but That's true. That, that that may be the case uh, Um Bucky's guilt and PTSD and trauma has led to, I think, I've not seen the entirety of his work, but Sebastian Stan's best work in the MCU at least uh, by <laughs> yeah, far. Sure. Uh, his emotional acting in okay, you know, the the title of the show is The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but the Winter Soldier is, like, the, thief, the fifth most important character in the show. You got you know, Sam Wilson, <laughs> then you got, like, John Walker, then you got Carly, then you got Isaiah Bradley, and then, like, kind of at the bottom there, you got, you got Bucky, right? You know? Yeah. But the, the small moments that we did get with Bucky... Mm. Really good acting with with Sebastian Stan, particularly the one where he was being deprogrammed by the Dormilage in in Wakanda. Yeah. Great bit of acting, just just focusing on his face, right? You know, um, the date that he goes on, you know, that this this like, kind of little things really shows Bucky as a person, not just yeah. like as the Winter Soldier and yeah. what he's dealing with. That's good. My only issue with that is just, like they just didn't do enough with it. Um, his talk with Nakajima at the end mm. should have been dramatized. I agree. Uh, yeah, so I was I was a little disappointed in that but Yeah, I, with with uh, what little we got about here, I love love Sebastian Stan's performance. I just wish that we had more of it.
1: I agree, I agree. Um, actually, uh, just a couple of episodes into Falcon and Winter Soldier, like I really, really had this need to go and rewatch First Avenger. Yeah, which I, which I did. Uh, you know, and um, Sebastian Stan faces the exact same problem with that as well. Like he's only human. Um, uh, from before Steve Rogers becomes Cap. Right. Like we actually had to see what he's like. We see what their relationship is like after that. The moment he becomes cap and then he becomes a prisoner and all that, like that all just kind of like falls into the background. He's just a sidekick. Mm -hmm. Um so I I am glad that we got to see the human side of him after like a good century or so. Yeah. Um you know, and and, and just kind of see him recovering. I do like the little notebook thing, which was Steve's thing Mm. um to kind of begin with. Um like one of the few one of the few instances of TV media where therapy actually has some good yeah. <laughs> come out of it, uh, which is great uh, mm-hmm. to see. Um, but yeah, they could have definitely done a lot more, right? Um, his kind of turn from grumpy, grumpy cent- uh, centenarian at the beginning yeah. of the film to kind of like this shades-wearing, uh, cake-bringing uncle of the family yeah, was a bit abrupt, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um and and they they could have definitely done more there but again with all the things that they were packing in I'm mm-hmm. not surprised. Um it would be great if we really got like a proper winter soldier series, right? Yeah. Like I think Sebastian Stan is capable of carrying a show by himself mm-hmm. uh, for sure and um you know I I, I hope that happens uh, in the future. Maybe we'll get a um Black Widow Winter Soldier thing which would be really cool as well.
0: Indeed, you know. Yeah. Um in the end, you know, like just to sum it up, I thought that like on a, this show, the little bit cinematic scale action, you know, mm-hmm. the action was thrilling, it was big, the buddy cop energy is is off the charts, the political allegories are on are, are on point. Uh however the, the the one thing that kinda drags the show score for me a little bit is this kind of the mediocre finale, which I think repeatedly <sighs> failed to put the work in to get the character from one beat to the next. Yeah. Um, a, a bit of a convenient, a bit of a lazy finale. Despite it being exciting, like overall, you know, from an action standpoint. Yeah. Um, which is why I think I would g- give this rating a seven point five out of ten. I think I gave Wanda like an eight or eight point five. So this is a bit lower for me. This is seven point yeah. five out of ten.
1: Yeah. Um, it's a seven for me. Yeah. Um, just because like I really do feel like the finale was a bit kind of meh. It it felt like look, we're gonna debut. Um, Sam's gonna crash through the windows. Everybody's gonna look at the costume. And we don't yeah. need to do anything after that, right yeah. that basically is what it felt like. um I really didn't like the grandstanding at the end. I really felt that that was like a real cop out right mm-hmm. because un- unless you are gonna show that what he said has a direct impact in in turning that into action for for the rest of the world like so what right mm-hmm. um it- it's It's a nice speech, you know it's heartfelt. Um, only the real things that re- made real impact were the concrete things that Sam was able to do, right? Which was ultimately yep. recognizing Isaiah Bradley, which I think was the most important thing that he 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 was able to do, um, mm. and, and it's great with that. Uh, and of course, um, Sh- Sharon's pardon, which now leads us into a whole kind of different ball game uh, with probably that.
0: Probably the probably the villain of Cap Four, right? Uh,
1: I don't think she's big enough. I, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't think she's a big enough villain for Cap Four, um, but we'll see, we'll see. Uh, I, I think traditionally the MCU has had no idea what to do with Sharon's character, mm. um, you know, and and kind of turning her from from like a possible love interest to Steve, after what I went on with Peggy and all of that was just like distasteful to the nth degree, and like her having her shoe in as a as the power broker, and the real ve- reveal of that being so like. <sighs> Oh, my God. I really kind of like, yeah, it, it left a pretty bad taste in my mouth. I, I wish they had done more with her, right? Like, the way that it's set up is so promising. Mm. But we are just getting kind of drips and drops from there, you know? Um. So, yeah, it's a 7 for me. I think all in all, I had great fun with it. All in all, like, the action is great. It looks gorgeous. Um. The character development is is solid stuff. Brings yeah. up a lot of questions that don't get answered, which I'm hoping they do in the movie, or else I'm just going to be a bit annoyed. Like, the huge kind of, like, Chekhov's gun at the beginning about Steve being on the moon, mm-hmm. right? Like, you have to address that, you know? It's, it's just, like, it's part of the but rules, it, guys.
0: But that was just, like, a running joke.
1: Yeah, it is a running joke, but n- no one should need to bring that up without us eventually finding out what happens to Steve. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And for that, to have that hangovers for six episodes... Okay, sure, right. It's not too bad, but if it's going to be a long-term thing and everybody's just going to keep joking about it, I don't know. It's going to be an anno- it would be an annoyance sooner or later. Is is my take on that? Um, Indeed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um moving forward, I guess probably the big keys for the future that, that Falcon and Winter Soldier sets up besides Cap for is the Thunderbolts. Uh mm. General General Thunderbolts uh G- General Ross's team, uh his very own suicide squad, shall we say, made up of uh villains currently captured inside the raft. Yeah. Uh Baron Zemo has been added to the team. Um we already know from casting that that Ghost from ant Man and the Wasp is gonna be on the team, as well as Abomination from the Incredible Hulk. Yeah. Uh as well as the leader of the team team uh, Yelena Blacklova uh, Mm -hmm. played by Florence Pugh who is uh, Black Widow's sister who will be introduced uh, in the Black Black Widow film that's very interesting apparently uh, there was a post credit scene here that was supposed to air here but they moved it was supposed to be uh, Florence Pugh recruiting Baron Zemo into the Thunderbolts fold Uh, it has been said that they are moving that post credit scene to Black Widow because of they have reversed the order now yeah they so swapped they it. didn't want to introduce yeah they didn't want to introduce her here uh out of context uh, you know uh, yeah. much in the same way that uh contessa Valentina uh, uh, the yeah. us, was was so, was supposed to be introduced in Black widow but uh was introduced here first, so the her appearance here didn't have the context that it should have so, for sure. like, COVID has sort of for, forced like the the calendar moves, which kind of affected. You know mm. t- uh, the logistics issues uh, yeah. to a certain extent and with like so many moving parts uh, I, I, I'll I, give them a pass uh, for like why like the Valentina review didn't hit why Baklova wasn't there you know so yeah whatever.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's that's perfectly fine right like yeah. if, for me m- having Madam Vice President <laughs> show up yeah. as you know future Mad- Madam Hydra is like a big deal as it is Um, without the context I think she still functioned perfectly fine within the role that she needed to play mm-hmm. for the series uh, but definitely, um, showing Florence Pugh here would have been strange. Though I'm yeah. absolutely psyched to see Florence Pugh in the MCU. Big fan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ho- um, and and we'll see. We'll see. Black Widow isn't that too uh, that far out from from where we are at. So mm. uh, hopefully, you know, um, I don't think they had to do that much finagling for the swap uh, mm-hmm. in the schedule itself. Uh, yeah. But we'll see. Yeah.
0: Uh, last thing before we leave, Ed Brubaker has come out several times, the creator of The Winter Soldier, uh, one of the best comic book writers uh, working today, by the way, you know, like, the entirety of Captain America Winter Soldier up to now has been based on his arcs. Ed yeah. Brubaker. Um, Ed Brubaker has said several times that he has not been paid for <laughs> for this multi-billion dollar franchise that he's created, you know. He's yeah. been given, like, a small token sum, uh, but then, like, he feels upset. Like he he knows that when he signed on to Marvel, Marvel is creator own work, right? So you you don't own it. You don't get royalties for it. Yeah. Uh, and whatever the MCU has been throwing him has just been our goodwill. But you know, he just feels like you know they could give him a little bit more, considering like how much money like his creations are made for them. Yeah. Uh, and and I say this with regards to every other comic book writer out there as well. Uh, if you have used their creations, their ideas, their story points to make, you know, several hundred billion dollars for yourselves, mm-hmm. uh, maybe, you know, cut them a check for a few thousand bucks. La. Like, you just, you know... Just
1: give them... Yeah, I mean, like, it's, yeah. it's only right. Uh,
0: just just co- co- cover rent for them for the next couple of months, you know, at least. At least, la, you know, like, give them something. La. And I feel bad for Abru Baker and the rest of the of the writers at Marvel and DC, particularly because, they, you know, it's not creative own work, which is why it's sad. La. Yeah yeah so pay at brubaker guys um next up i'm gonna be jumping into speaking of comic books uh from uh non-creator-owned work to creator-owned work i'm gonna be talking about robert kirkman's invincible mm. robert kirkman used to work in marvel and dc and then he realized he ain't gonna get that royalty so he started doing creator-owned stuff uh he's most famous for the walking dead uh Now, his second most famous comic book, Invincible, has been turned into an animated TV show at Amazon Prime. Uh, The comic book, Invincible, ran from 2003 to 2018, uh, and it quickly became one of Image Comics' most beloved titles, thanks to its compelling uh, take on the superhero coming-of-age genre. Uh, Fans of that original comic book series will be happy to find out that Amazon Prime's animated adaptation kept... What makes the comics work While fixing a lot of the frustrating And problematic issues that were found in the comics Mm -hmm. Uh, Invincible primarily Follows Mark Grayson who is voiced by Steven Yeun here, uh, the son of uh, Omni-Man who is voiced by J.K. Simmons And Debbie Grayson who is voiced By Sandra Oh Uh, Omni-Man is originally from the planet Viltrium A bit like a a Kryptonian character He possesses superpowers Greatly reminiscent of Superman Including super speed, super strength And he's passed it on to his son Uh, While Mark is something of a late bloomer, his powers eventually manifest, which results in his father teaching him how to use them, basically uh, father-son training uh, to how to be a superhero. Uh, Mark, for his part, wants to use his incredible abilities to help the people of Earth. Yeah. Uh, but however, as a high school student, he's forced to you know, do the Peter Parker thing, try to balance uh, this obligation to use great power for great responsibility alongside homework and romance and stuff like that. It's a very Peter Parker type story. Uh, soon though, the stakes escalate due to a secret that threatens everything he holds dear. Uh, it turns out that Omni-Man is not the hero that he says it is. Um, mm. As an adaptation... Invincible Hughes closer to the source material than than The Walking Dead or The Boys does. Yeah. Um, the num- the number of plot points are pulled straight from the comics and ex- executed almost verbatim in the same way. Uh, yes, there is some remixing going on. You know, like some some later stories come in earlier and some and some you know uh early stories are pushed to later. You know, but small superficial changes uh, as well as the kind of the, the race bending of Mark. You know, now he's half Korean to fit with Stephen Yeun's casting. Mm-hmm. Um. But for the most part, these alterations are extremely successful. Invincible succeeds at capturing the spirit of Kirkman's original comic, and in many ways improves upon it. You know, it's, a, it's a product of the early 2000s, like the comic is, and rereading yeah. Invincible in 2021 can be somewhat frustrating due to, among other things, an undercurrent of like homophobia that's kind of pervasive in the early issues. Mm-hmm. Um, while, while accurate to how many people spoke at the time, there is still a certain cringiness that if you were to hear it in, in dialogue form, today uh, is best avoided um, yeah. however in adapting the source material invincible drops a lot of content that might prove um Problematic, while going a long way to make the show more diverse uh, both on-screen and off-screen uh, as with the voice casting. Yeah. Um, as a TV series, The Invincible Show shares a lot of the same DNA with the boys. Um, both are meant to be more realistic, subversive takes on the superhero genre. Uh, so this ends up being most evident in the show's violence and gore. And make no mistake, Invincible is brutal at times. Um, however, the show's blood and guts isn't gratuitous and seems more like a natural extension of Using to depict animated superheroes in a realistic way. Um, this ends up helping Invincible really balance the realism and fantasy by emphasizing that bad decisions can result in life-changing consequences. You mm-hmm. know? Um, a, bit, a bit of a better take on, on, on this kind of violence than what Zack Snyder does, for example. Like, What makes Invincible shine is the perfect blend of that vibe alongside the, the bright and colorful golden age comics optimism. Or in this case, it's animated in the Saturday morning cartoon style of animation. Yeah. Uh, so so you pair that aesthetic alongside a very brutal story. Uh, it makes for a very interesting juxtaposition, you know. Uh, like the, the vibe of the story is very bright, it's very optimistic, golden age Saturday morning cartoon. But the stories themselves and the violence is more in tune with the boys. So I like that juxtaposition. Mm. Uh, one of the best things about Invincible is the stellar voice performances alongside the great animation. The combat sequences of which there are a lot are captivating. However, the best is that is uh, the, the the best part of the animation is when Mark is flying. You know, it really captures the feeling of soaring through the air. You know, it makes you feel natural and weightless. Inspires the sense of wonder that Superman, the original one, had. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a lot of attention to detail in the expressions of the characters as, as well. Very well animated. So overall, this is a really, really good series. Like the only thing that knocks it down the pack is that by 2021, right? Shows like this are new. Um, back in 2003, the idea of Invincible was very cool, very fun, very fresh. Yeah, you know, sh- showing that like superheroes is not all fun and games by this, this the demonstrating the ugly side of it. You know, um. It was still subversive and fresh then, but by now, it's kind of old hat. Uh, but it's kind of not the fault of the show, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, the, the comics came out way back when, you know? How could they have predicted that stuff like The Boys would come out? Uh, so that drags it down from what I was originally going to give it, like an 8 to a 7.5 out of 10. Um, you know, it's interesting because the first two shows that we reviewed, The Falcon, The Winter Soldier, and Invincible... Uh, both are dragged down for me because I feel like they're lesser versions for the boys um, in terms of like <laughs> with, with Falcon and i in the social political commentary yeah. which doesn't like which isn't nearly as smart as the boy, boys seem to and, and Invincible is kind of trying to do the same thing. Uh, so yeah, 7.5 out of 10. Uh, overall, a very good show though. Um, next up, cool. we got Infinity Train so mm. over the past couple of years if yes. you listen to our podcast <laughs> Infinity Train has become one of my favourite cartoons of all time mm. just for its sheer imagination and layers of emotional complex uh, complexity I'd say that it rivals Adventure Time or Steven Universe and judging by the fact that the past three seasons have been rated 9 9.5 and 10 out of 10 for me you can tell that the show uh, that I love the show and I'm kind of sad to hear that HBO Max has cancelled it meaning oh, it's man. Fourth- Season is its final one. So you know, for those who don't know, Infinity Train is an anthology. Uh, clearly, a lot of you don't know like, because the ratings are bad. Um, so each season follows different protagonists as they explore an extra-dimensional train where each car contains a different pocket universe. It's created by Owen Dennis. Uh, book one introduced us to the bizarre realm of puzzles and spooky mm-hmm. residents and wild adventures and the hand number tattoos that correspond with emotional growth or slippage. Uh, human passengers must get their number down to zero to end their exit back to the real world. Uh, and each car contains uh, you know, eccentric uh, denizens, you know, sentient, anthropomorphic animals or talking inanimate objects, just to name a few. Uh, humans might get their number down by interacting with these, with these denizens and solving puzzles as they, as they pass through the cars. And the stepping, to- stepping stones and slippages matter as much as the destination because you know, all of these is to test your emotional growth. Yeah. Uh, the main human passenger in each season must confront their traumas and fears. So Tulip in season one dealt with her parents' divorce. Jesse in season two uh, accepts responsibility for giving into peer pressure. Um, although I think in season two he's more of a supporting player. Yeah. M- 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 quest for self-exalization. Okay. Uh, in, in book three, uh, Grace and Simon must confront their toxic. Perspectives, you know, and stuff like that. So, you know, when observing the shifting of the train's order across seasons, right, there's uh, there's this kind of budding interrogation of the nature of the train, a train that applies algorithms to to track moral progress that steals young passengers, including young children, and drops them into potential life or death situations. So, kind mm-hmm. of book two kind of established uh, a challenge that establish formulas indicating that uh, subverting and bending the rules outside of the train's mandates can be your salvation. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw uh, empty literally rage against the machine yeah. um, that, that has erased <laughs> and neglected her uh, but book 3 boy book 3 was a tough act to follow uh, it tracked a disintegrating found family who has mes- metastasized into resentment, distrust, terror, dogmatic carelessness. Um, they are very, very, very hateable characters as your protagonist, mm-hmm. which makes it a very tough ride. So, you know, spending time with toxic people and, and pitting them at the same time because they lacked guidance in their training environment as well as, you know, you kind of root for them to heal while simultaneously being appalled by their actions. Yeah. Uh, so Book True was a tough act to follow. It was very dark, very, very dark uh book book 4 feels like an antidote to the darkness hmm. uh focusing more on rebuilding the central relationship of, of its protagonist after yeah. its fractures you know so the result is one of the shows lightest and most heartwarming season you know so book 4 more that, book 4 not since book 1 not since season 1 right book 4 speaks to the ethos at the core of infinity train which mm-hmm. is we all have a chance to do better and get better if we try you know um so, Book 4 does an interesting thing where it doesn't delve deeper into the mythology of the train. Instead, it chooses to use its last season more to delve into the ethos of the train. So, okay. you know, we, we, we've done a lot of the of the myth building. Let's get back to, like, a Season 1-style show as an antidote to the Season 3 darkness. So mm-hmm. The passengers this time around are two best friends. Uh, we, we are introduced to a free-spirited guy called Ryan mm-hmm. uh, and his responsible friend Minji. Uh, in their childhood, both these boys dreamed of becoming rock stars. Uh, but while Ryan sets off on a cross country tour to try to make it big, Minji works at a local restaurant and prepares for college. Uh, so, you know, they have uh, different ideas uh, about what success is. So the action kicks off when Ryan books a gig in New York and returns home to persuade Minji to come with him. Yeah. After an argument, they wind up aboard the Infinity Train in matching grey jumpsuits, and they have matching numbers on their hands. Um, according to the train denizens, you know, um, two passengers coming aboard at the same time with the same number is basically unheard of, which speaks to how intertwined the issues are. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes Book Four unique is that this time around, the train mythology, as I said, and the mechanics are obvious to the audience. We know the drill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't bother to, they don't bother to explain it to us, you know. Uh, and most interestingly, the passengers passed Aren't treated as mysteries. Usually, you know, we are we're treated to a flashback later on in the show that explains the trauma. Mm-hmm. Book four, the entire first episode takes place off-train. Uh, it presents Ryan and Minji's relationship from the first episode on, liter- literally, starting from the day they were born. You know? Wow. <laughs> um, okay. so both both friends care for each other, but their conflict stems from the choices. Minji sacrifices his dreams to please his parents. Meanwhile, Ryan takes that personally. Ryan flies into situations head first without thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wants to be a rock star. He wants to pursue his art and his dream. And Minji sees that as reckless and inconsiderate. Uh, so, big, book four is about healing uh, both their perspectives and their friendships. You know, like how can they remain? Uh, codependent on each other or remain friends with such varying world views you know? yeah. and that, and that means it 's not all fun in games, you know although some of it is still c d fun like there 's one entire episode dedicated to feeding a giant squealing baby pig voiced <laughs> by j k Simmons. <laughs> Okay. So so okay. that's really fun too, you know, it's like yeah. uh, two very different roles for for the for the past two shows that I talked about with J.K. Simmons. Uh. uh, but Minji and Ryan also must confront ugly truths, have difficult conversations, and repair their friendship. Um, as usual, the train forces their problems to come to light while helping. You know, um, the, in, in this time, their companion is called Kaz Uh, to, Kaz also has to confront her own problems. Kaz is basically a, an anthropomorphic talking, uh, bell. You know, like like one of those concierge bells. Oh right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so like there's a lot of frilling uh, stuff. There's a lot of dark stuff. There's a lot of fun, light-hearted stuff. Uh, but you know the dark stuff is not nearly as dark as book three, um, Yeah, questions about the train still linger. They might never get be answered at this point since book four is reportedly the end. Uh, and apparently it's time for real um, oh, characters, man. characters and plot points from previous seasons that were left dangling. Yeah, you're not gonna get. They're not gonna get tied up. That- but book. But yeah, but since book four ends without new questions or dangling cliffhangers, I think it ends up as a reasonably satisfying conclusion for the Infinity Train saga thematically. Uh, well, not necessarily okay. mechanically. Um, if all of the questions about the train were answered, I guess it might lose some of its mystique and appeal. So instead of finishing the show by stripping away the mystery, I think Owen Dennis and his team wanted to use the last season to showcase the, the train's true purpose, You know, showing mm. us that we have a chance to do and get better. But at the same time, I do wish that they do have a chance for future seasons to wrap up the other mysteries of the show. I'm giving this an 8 out of 10. Mm. Uh, and I do wish that you know they would. At least give it a couple more seasons, because uh, like this this has been planned as a six season arc, yeah. And Owen Dennis just doesn't have a, just doesn't have a chance, uh, to really get to fulfill his vision, you know. Um, sad to see such a great show cut short. Um, it doesn't ha- it doesn't get the Invin- uh, it doesn't get the Steven Universe or Adventure Time chance to, to to live up its natural lifespan and and give you the conclusion that you deserve, which makes it very disappointing for one of the best cartoons out there. Mm-hmm. Um. You you have some thoughts about Infinity Train as well. Yeah,
1: I mean, I love Infinity Train. I, I hopped on board um I think in season two I I hopped on board to help with the the review for that. Yeah. When you were doing that. Uh I Okay. I, I think part of the reason why like um the it, its ratings aren't good is also because of the fact now that we're moving on the streaming, the platform it's on isn't great, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh it's a bit sad. But at the same time I do feel like um the possibility of it being t- taken up by another streaming service is quite high given in this day and age. And yeah. that might actually help it a great deal. Like, I feel having watched like three, three out of the four seasons of uh, Infinity Train, you put mm-hmm. this on Netflix, damn, it would do so well. Right? Yeah. Together with all the other stuff that's there, um, you know, like the fact that Steven Universe blew up again after, you know, it started showing on Netflix as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so fingers crossed, um, they get to continue the story on another platform or even through another medium, right? Uh, I I would love to read the comics if if they ever wanted to continue like book five and and onwards with that. Um, So I I hope so, because I I think this is one of the stories um, that, you know, it's the close, it it is that upper kind of echelon of of animation that we've gotten over the last couple of years. And it's very Mm -hmm. sad to see it end prematurely.
0: Definitely, man. Um, speaking of Netflix, you know um, a show that I'm pretty sure is going is to blow up on <laughs> Netflix is Netflix's new YA fantasy series, uh, Shadow and Bone. Yeah. It is based on the first book of Lee Bardugo's best-selling Grishaverse books. Uh, it's about a kingdom in turmoil and the magic users who defend it. Uh, in the hands of showrunner Eric Heisserer, who is the screenwriter of Arrival, mind you, um, mm-hmm. the first novel I think. Uh, finds a new life over the eight-hour-long uh, episodes that is presented in season one. Uh, and I think it fulfills the potential it always has. Uh, I, I've read the Grishaverse books last year, uh, and book one is the weakest of those books. Yeah. Uh, Sh- Shadow and Bone, huge improvement on book one. And I think it's, it's coming to the level of the later books in terms of like, complexity and depth. You know, uh-huh. I think Batuko, in several interviews, openly admits that her 2012 debut novel, it relied on the trappings of the Chosen One narratives, uh, while her other novels step away from those conventions. So the main series, though, like this first book, has been about, you know, the one girl with the unique power to save the world. We've seen it all before, you know. But I think the show does a better job of capturing the struggle than the book that, uh, to make it seem less cliche, you know. Yeah. Um, Shadow and Bone, I think, is finally elevated to the depth and nuance of the rest of the Grishaverse books. I'd even go to so far as to say that this is a big improvement, and and I think most people who've read the book will agree with me. lah. Mm-hmm. Um, To set the premise, the story is set in war-torn Ravka, a a country split in half by a swath of tangible darkness known as the Shadow Fold, Uh, and it follows a young mapmaker named Alina Starkov who discovers that she has the power to summon sunlight. It's a near-mythic power that could dissolve the fold at last uh, and and reunite the two two separate countries. uh, Alina is, is whisked away from her former life and her best friend Mel to train with the kingdom's other magic users, the Grisha, um, so they, they are under the helm of the formidable King uh, General uh, Kerrigan, who is played by Ben Barnes here, um, as well. Uh, we also follow a band of thieves uh, led by the cunning Cas Brecker as they scheme about how to get across the fold. They don't want to end the fold. They want to get across the fold to accomplish an Ocean Eleven-style s- hike. Uh, <laughs> a very, very different genre with our, with our secondary group of characters. So the show, from the get-go, dumps a lot of lore on the audiences very quickly, yeah. which may immediately appeal to long-time fans uh, like me, or it might turn off newcomers. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of vocabulary to catch on.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What is a Grisha? What is a Squalor? What is a tailor? And then there are the bigger <laughs> questions like, who is Rava warring against? Uh, one of Batugo's strengths in her novels is the seamless world building, which she integrates smoothly into the plot, so it rarely feels like a big info dump. So it feels like Heizerer and the rest of his team here tried to do the same thing. They, they in fact, is almost uh, disproportionately catered to book fans mm. uh, who already know the terms and the terminology and the vocabulary. Uh, but it, it doesn't hold anyone's hands uh but for viewers who can keep up keep up right it's it's going to be a, a wild exciting ride but for viewers who can't it's going to be a big turn off you know yeah uh, and and you've seen like a bit of shadow and bone right like uh, what what do you think of it from a non from a non book readers standpoint
1: yeah so i recall you talking about it um talking about uh, reading the novels themselves right so i was pretty excited uh, when they announced it uh the first episode is kind of a mess if you ask me like yes, honestly so much, i yeah. am not I am no stranger to fantasy novels and fantasy world-building and just like the vernacular that is needed to create those worlds. I completely understand. It is incredibly difficult to do. But to want to squeeze it into less than 30 minutes mm. is an impossible task. Um, you know, uh, and it, it's, it's kind of dizzying, right? The pace in which the first 30 minutes of the series takes place yeah. uh, just to establish everything that needs to be established. And I did find that fairly annoying. Um. That being said, right, it is very clear that it has immense and gorgeous production value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that in and of itself was enough to keep me going on past the first 30 minutes. Yep. Uh, you know, and as usual here at John Quality, we usually give it a three-episode rule yeah. um, as far as possible. So I gave it three episodes. Uh, and all in all, as someone who didn't read the books, I enjoyed it. Uh, mm-hmm. There are, however, a lot of Uh, I don't know if it's just like annoying YA takes like uh, Mm -hmm. as far as the characters go like there's always that those specific characters that you have to have right in every YA novel so those can be kind of uh, annoying I think Um, Mm -hmm. but it is a gorgeous series Uh, I'm not done yet but I have uh, gone over to episode uh, 7 and I by and large have enjoyed it Uh, I do feel it was a bit draggy in the middle yep um but outside of that, like honestly, like it's it's a solid uh piece of work. I, 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 I did a bit of reading up about the fact that um our subplot with the heist is actually from a different set of books by Correct. the same it's, author. It, it,
0: it, it's not part of the same book. It's part it's that in the same universe, yeah. but it's not part of the same story. Um, and, and that's what I wanted to talk about as an adaptation because it's yeah. not just an adaptation of book one in Grishaverse. It expands them by integrating other stories into the fold you know, from 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 the expanded universe. La. So when it comes to those stories like roping in characters from subsequent novels, yeah. I think it kind of uh, bolsters the, the standard chosen one plot line by giving you something else to focus on. Yeah. Um, the first season admittedly brings together a lot of moving parts and they take a while to mesh together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once they all start clicking and the, the storylines I think kind of build satisfying climax. The, the strength lies in the characters who are compelling on paper. They come to life in the show vividly. I think the, the, the performances by a lot of the unknown actors are very good. Mm. Um, their relationships and motives uh, add colour and shades to grey to an otherwise black and white plot. Yep. Uh, but it isn't the extra material that makes Shadow and Bone work so well as an adaptation. It's the fact that the main story, Alina's story, actually works better with this new casting because it works better as an inclusive narrative yep. by choosing to show her as a biracial character, mm-hmm. you know uh, firstly you know um, book one was Al- alina 's uh, limited first, per- first person perspective you know yeah. so that, like by including other parts of the world, you get a better idea of what the world is like mm-hmm. and Alina herself is more compelling and and it kind of almost transcends not not quite but almost transcends the chosen one archetype in this fantastical complex, I think because of her biracialness. Yeah. Um, it gives her it gives Alina a good reason to be ostracized. Uh, because she resembles Rafka's enemies to the south, um, and it's a smart change. The decision makes. Alina's loneliness even more powerful Mm -hmm. she isn't just a scrappy orphan who isn't like the other cool glamorous Grisha girls she actually has a legitimate reason to feel like an outsider so overall I think the first season of Shadow and Bone is a good improvement of the books on the flip side however the decision to smash together book one alongside stories from future books does awkwardly affect the pacing and momentum of the story in the second half at a lot of points Mm. Um, and while the lead character is a good example of the chosen one story that kind of works the show is often unable to escape Keep other fantasy white <laughs> cliches. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So overall, like a lot of good stuff, but a lot of room for improvement as well. Um. I feel like everything leading up to the heist at Little Palace is great. Yeah. Everything. Everything after it is kind of. It's kind of dull.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I. I totally agree with you. Like. Um. The build up to the heist was great, but the heist itself was kind of meh. Mm-hmm. Um. And like the way. Okay. I think the the way the revelations are treated are a bit lazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, like some of the big revelations feel a bit lazy. Uh, I did enjoy a bit of the flashback, but I didn't feel like it did nearly enough. Uh, uh weightlifting as it needed to, mm-hmm. um, to kind of like stick, carry the story forward. Uh, but that mm-hmm. being said, I do feel like I enjoy the subplot far more than the main plot. Yeah. Um, just because the the chemistry there with the characters is just re- like rock solid, you know. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. but yeah so having no basis on on to go off with the books itself like it is thoroughly enjoyable uh if you can close one eye to uh, some of the pretty typical annoying ya things um Mm. that you're gonna get but if you're okay with those kind of things or even love those things then i I think shadow and Bone is pretty dope
0: oh yeah definitely man Uh, i'm giving this a a 7 out of 10 uh, and i'm being a little generous i would I would usually give something like this a 6.5 out of 10. Uh, yep. But because I think I'm more familiar with the books, yep. uh, it, it, it wasn't such a struggle for me to, to keep it up, yep. uh, to, to, to follow the show. So yeah, that's why it's a 7 out of 10. But I can see why people who don't watch the show might rate it a 5 or a 6 out of 10. Yeah, uh, who, a, who, don't, who don't read the books. It's
1: uh, a 6 but... out of me just because, like, uh, by and large, if you're going to do an adaptation and you know that you're going to have to introduce this to non-readers of the book, right? You ought to do a better job at some of these things mm-hmm. uh it just took a bit like you try to do too much in the first half and then you take too long to kind of resolve what you introduce um was the main issue for me uh but i think it's a very kind of bold move to want to merge multiple stories across a very timeline from the same universe into one show like that yeah. kind of like juggling is insane and i think mm-hmm. you they did a pretty good job of it which is why i'm i'm still recommend the show anyway
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that so that is Shadow and Bone. Uh, available now on Netflix. Next up, we're going to be talking about Apple TVs for all mankind. Mm. Uh, for all mankind is a meticulously crafted alternate <laughs> history science fiction series from Ronald D. Moore, who's uh most famous as the showrunner of the rebooted Battlestar Galactica, uh, AKA the best one. Uh, he also created <laughs> um Deep Space Nine, Star Trek, uh, and also Outlander. Um, this was a show that imagines or, or turns the, the 1960s, 1970s space race on its head by imagining what the world would be like if the Soviets landed the first man on the moon instead of America. Yeah. So I reviewed season one on this podcast and I said that while I found it intriguing, I was mostly let down by the uneven execution and the draggy pacing. Yeah. But my God, season two, season two is something else. Um, some of my favorite shows of all time only ever really found their footing in Season 2. I'm talking shows like Buffy, The Leftovers, uh, Legends of Tomorrow, um, yep. all the Star Treks, uh, Halt and Catch Fire, and things like that. You know, I'm glad to say that For All Mankind joined that pantheon of late bloomers because Season 2 is astounding. Um, season 2 jumps from 1974 to 1983 in a very different world from our own. Mm-hmm. The butterfly effect of the Soviets' landing has many curious consequences. Um in season one, uh, NASA tried to bounce back from its PR disaster by hiring uh, more astronauts who are a lot different than who are a lot different from the astronauts that we saw in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're trying to move the PR goalposts, you know. So okay, we didn't land on the moon first, but now we have a lot more women astronauts. We have a lot more astronauts of colour. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of social progress was made because of America's humiliation and the country's desire to to, to, to change their perception. In season two, you know, there's a lot of you know, curious things also, like Ronald Reagan is elected president a lot earlier in 1976. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the Soviets don't invade Afghanistan. Um, the one assassin misses John Lennon while another kills uh, Pope John Paul II. There's no miracle on ice, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But it's all like kind of... Um, uh flourishes like a lot of uh you know like uh, yeah just like uh, you know some interesting things to think about the the most intriguing thing about season 2 is, is of course is the changes to nasa yeah um what the soviets have done ha- has 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 sparked off an endless cold war in space that has sped up since Season 1, uh, and that takes precedence. Now there are giant lunar research bases, there are lunar mi- mining missions, mm. and what the heck, there are like lots and lots of guns in space. Um, because, of, because of course, if the Cold War was to take place on the moon, this is what would happen, right? Yep. Uh, and, and the Cold War just never ended in, in this in, in this world. Um, for All Mankind is essentially an alternate reality workplace drama, though. Um, and while it suffered because of its characters were not developed well in Season 1, Mm -hmm. In season two, where it thrives, where it thrives, is the characters feel more specific and three-dimensional now, which in turn makes the long swaths of focus on interpersonal dynamics a lot more interesting than they were a season ago. Um, season 2 will also reward you spectacularly. There's, a, whole, there's a, stre- a home stretch of episodes towards the end that feel like one domino after another is being knocked over in gorgeous fashion. Um, there are three simultaneous NASA missions that wind up taking place in a moment that could feel like you know, it could either make or break the world uh, save or end the world. Um, the last couple of episodes in particular are among the best episodes I think ever made in TV history. Wow. I'm not kidding. The last two episodes are insanely good. This show has finally reached its potential and I'm guessing it's also only getting better. Um, season 1 was a flat 6 out of 10 for me. Season 2 though, is a 9 out of 10 for me. Damn. A huge jump in quality. So, um, I would advise you to start watching For All Mankind and put up with season 1 which is not bad <laughs> okay like like season 1 is not bad like 6 out of 10 is not bad it's yeah, just yeah. okay but you will be ha- well rewarded in season 2 which is which is great
1: yeah yeah i mean like plowing through a 6 to get to a 9 out of 10 season sounds like a decent trade off
0: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, man. Yeah. Um. So, th- that. That's uh, That's for all mankind. You can find it on Apple TV Plus. But let's talk about the big one coming out in Singapore theaters uh, as well as HBO Max. Uh, the latest adaptation of the Mortal Kombat. <laughs> uh, video games. Uh, that finally allows Mortal Kombat to be Mortal Kombat. Um, there is no, like, campy PG bullshit like in the 1995 movie. Yeah. Uh, this one strives to be the ultra-violent, ultra-bloody, ultra-gory spirit of the game. You know, the brutalities and fatalities and all. Uh, in this version, we follow MMA fighter Cole Young, who is unaware of his heritage or why Outworld's Emperor Shang Tsung has sent Sub-Zero and Cyromancer to hunt Cole down. So mm-hmm. he fears for his family's safety. Cole goes in search of Sonya Blade at the behest of Jax, who is a Special Forces Major, uh, who bears the same dragon-marking tattoos uh, that that Cole was born with. So, eventually, he finds himself at the Temple of Lord Raiden, an Elder God, and the Protector of Earthrealm, who grants sanctuary to those who bear the mark. Here, Cole trains with experienced warriors like Liu Kang, Kang Lao, and Kano, as he prepares to stand uh, with Earth's greatest champions against the enemies of Outworld Mm -hmm. in to, you know, basically to defend the from. So this one is directed by Simon McQuaid uh, in his directorial debut. Uh, the 2021 Mortal Kombat has the advantage of better special effects. Of course, you know, 30 years. Yeah. Um yeah, you know, uh, and also like there's the history of video games and comics and books to tap on now now that now that you can, you know, uh get on that. Uh plus they have a choreography team that cut their teeth on films like The Raid and John Wick. Yeah. Uh and, and McQuaid has gone ahead to embrace the violence and gore that is signature of the franchise. The question is, is that all enough to compensate for this piece of garbage film? Uh which fails on nearly every level. What do you
1: think? <sighs> okay. So, in the moments where we get the violence that we crave, yeah, it's not bad, yeah, it's not bad, right? Some scenes were brutal enough, not nearly as brutal as I would have liked it, but it was brutal enough. Everything else, however, is trash <laughs> mm-hmm. so i don't I don't think like as a whole, like oh my God, seriously. It's hard to say that this is an improvement in any way over any number of Mortal Kombat films that we've got, right? Mm-hmm. Like, namely, maybe maybe it's better than Annihilation, but I think that's about it. Um, yeah. But honestly, like, I'm a little disappointed because it promised a great deal in the hype up to this. And mm-hmm. the trailer was decent enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but man, uh, I think it was a bit of a waste of one and a half hours.
0: 100% agree. I, I did not like this film in the least. This is an extremely <laughs> extremely violent but also extremely dumb B-movie. It's terrible yeah. dialogue and storytelling. But I guess the fight's delivered, right? So I, I yeah. think that's why I'm giving it a 5 out of 10. I'm, I wasn't going to outright fail it because you know, people do watch it for only one thing and they got the one thing.
1: Yeah, and you got a lot of that one thing, right? Like Just how, like how we were talking about Godzilla vs. Kong, you know, Kaiju's fighting. That's what we want. Please give yeah. that to us. Mortal Kombat, I want to see, you know, uh, different martial arts and people dying horribly uh, in the most, like, kind of ridiculous, uh, gory ways possible. Did we get mm-hmm. that? Yes. Did we get spades of that? Actually, in proportion to the runtime of the film, a fair yeah. bit. Um, But, like, yeah, everything else is just, are you serious? Like, mm. um, the performances are, I mean, lackluster would be a generous... <laughs> kind of thing but the thing is is that even with the fight scenes themselves because they have to be built upon the conflict that comes out of these performances i'm just like seriously yeah <laughs> um yeah so so even the fights themselves have no dramatic basis to happen uh mm-hmm. on a technical level i think the spectacle was well done uh as far as the vaccines go, not all of the vaccines, like it's not like all like amazing vaccines from beginning to end, right? Like this is not s S-tier anime for sure. Uh mm-hmm. but some of them were cool. Uh some of them were, were gory in ways that I did not expect, which was okay.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um but yeah, outside of that, like I, I don't know. I don't know if it's just because of the franchise itself that no one will ever really kind of do a Mortal Kombat movies that will please everybody uh but yeah this is definitely not it, Chief. like no
0: yeah 100% so um uh, you're five out of 10 as well or even lower than me uh
1: yeah i'm going to give you a 5 out of 10 because it's entertaining enough during the fight scenes oh you know mm-hmm. while you're doing something else right like if you're on your phone the rest of the time and you know you hear one of the stupid cheesy ass like close up shots with the with the with a line that's from the games itself, and then you look up, and then you see the fight scene, and then you go back to your phone, you're going to be fine. Um, Yeah. So, 5 out of 10 for me here.
0: Okay, cool. Um, next up, let's jump into Quick Hits, where I quickly talk about some of the stuff that my co-host has not seen. First off, is Netflix's Yasuke, mm. uh, which uh, has an all-star creative theme behind it. It's, it's uh, produced and created by LaShawn Thomas, who is, uh, was a storyboarder on Legend of Korra and the Boondocks, uh, and also the creator of Cannon Busters, which is also on Netflix. Um, yep. it's, it's animated by Studio Mapper, one of the most, uh, one, of the, the, one of the gold standards of, yeah, of, in the anime. Especially
1: field. in the last five years.
0: Definitely, you know. Uh, it features the voice of Oscar nominee Lakeith Stanfield in the titular role uh, alongside legendary beat maker Flying Lotus on the score. Um, Yasuke, it has a lot of formidable talent behind the scenes. And you combine all of that with its intriguing premise, loosely based or inspired by a real life African samurai who lived in Japan during the 16th century. Mm-hmm. This is a real thing. You can go mm-hmm. Wikipedia or Yasuke. It's easy to see why there's so much hype in the lead-up. So let, let me give you the premise. It is set in an alternate reality Japan, not, not real Japan. Yeah. Um, we, are eventually, we are instantly dropped into a sci-fi fantasy version of a feudal Japan filled with mechs magic, and mutants. Uh, we follow the country's only black ronin through two timelines. In the present, Yasuke is an older man struggling to le- live a peaceful existence after a past life of violence. Yep. Uh, he, now, now he's serving as a boatman uh, in a rural village. In flashbacks, we learn of his history serving the daimyo Oda Nabunaga uh, during the Sengoku period of conflict, which was filled with bloodshed and betrayal. Um, Yasuke's life though is upended when he is tasked with protecting a magical young girl of immense power who becomes the target of dark supernatural forces. Um, yeah, uh, you've probably heard all, of all that before like, in various other things. Yeah. But I would say the, the most consistent strength of Yasuke is that it is unquestionably visually gorgeous. Mappa continues to be doing the Lord's work in anime. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um incredible stuff, great character designs, colorfully dynamic battle sequences, sword fights, hand to end combat, large scale wars, superpowered showdowns, they're all splendor. Uh, they, they they even craft like great astro plane sequences, you know, uh that are kaleidoscopic and, and awe-inspiring. And and flying lotuses like instrumental hip hop score and, and uh experimental electronica, it really, it really adds to the thrill and wonder of such scenes, you know. Yeah. Uh Thematically, Yasuke is surprisingly radical as well with a lot of pointed commentary on the racial disparities of the time period. Mm-hmm. Our protagonist continually bristles against a bigoted populace that diminishes his accomplishments as a warrior and only views him as a servant or as a slave. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's his inclusion in Oda Nobunaga's Samurai Elite that leads to his, uh, to his daimyo's uh, downfall um, because the, the daimyo is shockingly progressive. He is openly gay. Uh, he recruits foreigners and women into positions of power, Mm -hmm. uh, and that causes his allies and enemies to to rally against him due to his perceived uh, disrespect of their culture. Um, So the way that the show uh, questions tradition, interrogates both the noble and narrow-minded aspects of Japan's ancient code of honour, is quite commendable. Um, Unfortunately, though, Yasuke is often dragged down by its predictable plotting. Um, The familiar lone wolf and cub story, which... Oh, boy. <laughs> like, when, I, when I was giving you the premise already, I was like, oh, God, this one again? Yeah. Um, a lot of underbaked character development. Um, so much of it is predictable and, 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 you know, deja vu-ish that the dazzling climax feels lackluster because you've seen the exact same thing play out and done better mm-hmm. in hundreds of other anime and fantasy narratives. Yeah. Even its aesthetic, the Black Samurai in Feudal Japan aesthetic, it, even that's not original. Nope. You, if you've seen Afro Samurai... Yeah. You've seen this. Uh even the 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 other aesthetic, the anachronistic hip hop beats, yeah, uh accompanied to feudal Japan like uh story, you know, even that's you not know, original. You've seen nope. samurai shampoo. Mm. Um even the Afro Samurai was, was was caught by the Riza from Mutang. So yeah. you know, um certainly the the reproductive qualities <laughs> or the the or the shows that it mirrors, right, and how great they are, does your no favors. Mm. Um so that's why Yasky kind of falls flat for me, man. It is briskly entertaining without ever being particularly original or memorable. Yeah. Um. So I'm I'm giving this a five point five out of ten here.
1: Ah, oh, man. I I I was uh, that's a bit disappointing because I was I was expecting a lot of this given you know who the collaborators behind this are, mm-hmm. but at the back of my mind, Afro Samurai exists. That is the problem, right? Afro Samurai exists. It is a similar setting, a similar story, a similar every uh aesthetic and it's going to be so difficult to you know meet that bar or or supersede that bar for that matter I, i'm i'm glad to know that you know their take on um nobunaga and, and kind of like progressive values uh yeah. and all of that is something that they managed to capture so that's cool uh but mm-hmm. man i was expecting a lot more Oh well.
0: Yeah, yeah, especially considering the talent. Oh well. Uh you, you can also read like longer thoughts. Uh I have an enemy review out right now. Uh you can find it on anime.asia. So, you know, if you wanna I, I break down like, what I don't like about the show and what I do like about the show in greater detail in that yep. review. So if you if you want to go check that out, go ahead. Uh next up I'm gonna be talking about Vem, which is a new horror anthology show on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime that uh it tackles a different aspect of terror in, in America every season. Uh, and season one uh, is set in the 1950s, yeah. uh, and Vem centers on a black family who moves from North Carolina to an all-white Los Angeles neighborhood during the period known as the Great Migration, which is a real thing, you know, uh, when a lot of the families from the South moved into uh, suburban coastal areas uh, to try to uh, in- integrate themselves there. Yeah. Um, and get this, the all-white suburb that they move into in California. Do you know what it is?
1: Well,
0: it's Compton. Uh, Compton. Um,
1: are you serious?
0: Compton what? used to be an all-white suburb in the 50s. Did you know I didn't,
1: that? I didn't know that. Shit. Really? Yeah, it,
0: it's a real thing. That, like, the show has a lot of fun with like, you know, when they move to California, it's suddenly like Compton and then you see all these white people there. Like, there's such a... You know, for people who know Compton through basically 90s gangster rap and yeah. NWA and all that, like, yeah. it's just so mind-blowing, right? And then I had to Google like, whether like, this was Compton's real history. I, I, I just did that. <laughs> I
1: just did exactly that. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs>
0: So, so, this is where the families, the black families' idyllic home becomes ground zero, where malevolent forces, whether they be racist next door neighbors yeah. or, supernat- or supernatural forces indoors, threaten, uh, taunt, ravage, and destroy them. You know, uh, Think of episode three of Lovecraft Country, uh, oh. e- expanded into a, a, a season of television. Uh, but unlike that show, I think them eschews the, the escapism and horror fantasy in favor of very intense horror, yeah. super intense horror that attempts to, that attempts to induce vis- visceral dread without any reprieve. Um, this, is, um, this is a very relentlessly terrifying and harrowing show. It's like an intense pressure cooker mm-hmm. with no release valve. Uh, it's also a very stylish show. Don't get me wrong; it looks great. Uh, great camera work that blends, you know, like kind of 70s exploitation horror vibes with a strong political subtext, uh, combining paranormal and racial threats in, into unwelcoming white spaces. Um, but you know, the 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 characters, okay, I, I get that the characters have no room to breathe themselves. You know, yeah. they they jump from one one crisis to the to the other. So we are immersed into the mental exhaustion and the fear that black people must feel. Daily, mm-hmm. whether they're, they're living in the 1950s America or even today's America, for that matter. You know, it's just so exhausting, right? That being said, right, there are a couple of n- negatives because like, I think past a certain point in the show, uh, it starts to feel like de- degradation porn. You know what I mean. Oh, okay. Uh, like, like the the suffering just like starts to feel exploitative rather than eye opening. Uh-huh. Um, another bit of a, of an issue is the pacing. The show seems to run out of steam sometimes, uh, and at times it takes detours that are questionable. Um, and the biggest negative, if if you see Lovecraft Country episode three, you've seen this entire season done better in one episode (laughs) like like, why sit down to watch 10 hours of it when you can watch 45 minutes of Lovecraft Country episode 3 so that's yeah that's why it's a 6 out of 10 for me
1: oh man okay okay I I, I would uh, the the premise is interesting and I thought that you know because I really enjoyed episode 3 of of Lovecraft Country yeah um you know, would be something that would uh, I would manage to flesh it out, but uh, if that's not the case, then never mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of like, I mean, I I don't mean to like the the creators are black themselves, like All the writers are black, all the directors are black, you know. But past a certain point, you know, when you're, it's like the kind of the Twelve Years of Slave syndrome, like. Um, past, mm-hmm. past a certain point, it just feels like degradation porn. Um, like that um Janelle uh movie last year, which I uh, uh, felt yeah. the same way as well, you know. <laughs> Um, and it's kind of an issue which uh, I will talk about in a later show as well called The still. Um but for now next up let's talk about Amazon's Made for, Made for Love uh, this is based on a 2017 novel of the same name by Alyssa Nothing mm-hmm. uh, Made for Love is a sci-fi dark comedy about a woman trying to escape her controlling tech billionaire husband after he puts a high-tech microchip in her brain without telling her. Um, now, the reason I tuned into this is because of its star, uh, who is Kristen Melotti, uh, who we've oh. talked a lot of uh, in genre equality. Yeah. Um, there is typecasting, and then there is Kristen Melotti's career over the last few <laughs> years, uh, where she has repeatedly been hired to play strong-willed woman trapped in some useless dude sci-fi nightmare. Um, Black Mirror. <sighs> uh, you know what I mean, like, and, yeah. and nearly every other role since then, like, um, even the the genre trappings of uh Palm Springs, you know, um, you know, it's it's a bit of a thing these days, you know. <laughs> um, this time though, she's Hazel, uh, and she has a chip in her head that allows her tech mogul husband to monitor everything she sees, hears, and feels.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Milotti is incredible once again. She's such a dynamo. Uh, of justifiable confusion and rage. She has a great comedy chops, too, uh, as we've seen before, um, uh, trying to mine humour from very dark situations. That being said, though, the story itself is kind of disappointingly familiar. Yeah. Um, a lot of sci-fi ideas and allegories about abuse and control and objectification, while very important, have been done better and been done better elsewhere. Mm-hmm. The only reason to watch this is for Kristen Melotti. Uh, and that's why it's 6 out of 10.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay. Do yeah. you think she'll ever escape this little box that she's been put in? I don't know. She's I haven't seen either... her in anything else.
0: Yeah, she's always either, you know, trapped in a sci-fi nightmare because of some dude, yeah. or she is in uh, a rom-com, uh, which is How I Met Your Mother and Palm Springs. Yeah. Um, and Palm strings actually co- combine both of those two genres, uh, yeah. which is interesting. So I hope she gets to do something else. Uh, if not, she'll, <laughs> she'll go... She... I mean, I'm not. If not, she's sure gonna. I'm not. I don't mean it as dis, as it is. but yeah. She's gonna go down like the the Elizabeth Moss route, uh, where Elizabeth Moss always plays one role. Yeah. Which is damn good at it. Like she's fucking good at it. Like, yeah. Like incredible. She's like the Michael <laughs> jo- Michael Jordan of tortured women. But, you know. Like at the end of the day, like don't you want to do more? Yeah. 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 Okay. um, Before we jump into the hammock still let's talk about Thunder Force, which is a new superhero comedy Uh, on Netflix, starring Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer. Uh, They are two estranged best friends who become superheroes. Uh, McCarthy plays Emily, who has developed a genetic platform which gives ordinary people extraordinary superpowers. Uh, Lydia, who's played by Octavia Spencer, visits Emily's lab accidentally doses herself with the formula that gives her super strength. Uh, min- meanwhile, Emily's superpower is invisibility. Uh, the unlikely duo uh, are the least prototypical superheroes in existence, so they go about fumbling their way through fighting villains who populate their Chicago hometown. So, the idea of pl- putting, like, two plus size middle middle-aged women in a film like this is great, you know, like, the whole, like, that whole idea. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the movie itself just isn't very good. Or funny, for that matter. Like, everything about Thunder Force feels like a (sighs) watered-down rerun of McCarthy's better material like in Spy or in Bridesmaids. Um, Thunder Force's direction is flat, uh, unmemorable. The script is dim-witted and dumb. Um, Avoid this one at all costs. It's a 0 out of 10.
1: Yeah, I I caught 5 minutes of it. Yeah. And yeah, Absolutely not! Gonna touch that with a ten-foot pole.
0: Yeah, don't. Uh, genuinely, one of the worst movies made this year. Wait, wh- why did I qualify that? Genuinely, the worst movie made this <laughs> year. Like, not not one of you. Yeah.
1: Like, how many times have we given something a zero?
0: Twice, I think. Like, very few.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I am. Yeah, like I watched five minutes of it, and it was enough to give me a uh, for me to give it a zero. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah. Great, right? Like usually, there's at least like one redeeming factor, like a one out of ten. You know, get <sighs> it, like, there's nothing here. Um, to cap off quick hits, let's talk about season four of the Handmaid's Tale. Uh, this once acclaimed show has finally reached the point of diminishing returns. Um, don't get me wrong, the performances mm-hmm. are still great. The production values are still amazing. Uh, but you can tell that The Handmaid's still has far exceeded the natural lifespan of its story. Yeah. Um, there are some shows like Infinity Train that don't get to ever reach this point, and then there are other shows that do. You think about Homeland. Mm-hmm. Think about The Walking Dead or Dexter. The Handmaid's still has has gone past that point. Like Just because the network can't let go of its one cash cow... Um, the show has nothing new left to say and he has milked Margaret Edward's cautionary dystopian tale dry. Mm-hmm. Now it's just an endless tedious cycle of watching June make terrible selfish decisions and then watching various women get brutally tortured every episode. <sighs> I mentioned earlier that them them bordered on degradation porn. Yeah. The Handmaid's still has straight up become degradation porn right now. And that's a shame because this was once a great show. Um, it's a 4 out of 10 for me.
1: Damn, that's sad.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's move on though to uh, the the way of the house husband, yeah. which is a, a Netflix anime adaptation of the popular manga. Uh, you caught it. Um, actually, I've caught it as well, uh, but, like, <laughs> I'm I'm a bit out of breath, so I'm gonna let uh, I saw take this one. Like, what did you think about the way of the house husband?
1: Yeah. So, way of the house husband. For those of you who haven't heard our very glowing review of mm-hmm. the manga on our, our Behold episode, uh, which if you're watching on, if you're watching on YouTube, we'll just link that below. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we, uh, basically, we centers on our protagonist Tatsu, who is an in- infamous and very uh, feared Yafuza, known as the Immortal Dragon. Uh, he retires from his life uh, of uh, of uh, of in the criminal world to become a house husband so he can support his wife Miku, who is a, um, I think she's a designer, if I'm not wrong, right? She has a corporate career. Yeah, she has a corporate career basically, and you know, he retires to support um, her. Uh, so, they've adapted it to be a, kind of an episodic series on Netflix. Uh, and to be fair, right, There's uh, the animation isn't great. Like, uh, some of the comments that people have been talking about, it looks a lot like a slideshow, uh, which mm-hmm. is no surprise, considering that it was done by JC staff. Uh, we, if you guys have been listening long enough, I often have problems with because they are... Um, a lot of studios often outsource to them because they are good value for money, apparently. Yeah. yeah. So you pay for what you get for. Um, that being said, uh, the episodes that we have gotten so far, which is only one half, I believe. Uh, so we've got five episodes out of ten so far. Uh, so they are sufficiently animated for people who don't want to read the manga but still want to get into the way of the house husband. It is still continues to be funny. I think the voice acting is perfectly fine um, for what needs to be done. And the animation is enough, right? Like it gives you enough of an idea um, you know, of what's going on and and you know um the just kind of like misadventures of this man. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, I'm gonna keep it short. I'm gonna say that. Uh, at the end of the day, the manga is way better because we've just gotten more of the manga, right? At this point in time, I believe we are like 77 chapters into the manga, uh, which is like 20 more chapters than when we actually reviewed it for Behold. Uh, So there's new stuff if you want to go check that out as well. Um, But for what little we've got away of the House Husband so far, I think it's still worth a watch if you haven't checked it out at all. And I think it's enough to get you hooked on the fact that you're probably going to want to read the manga anyway. Right, So we're going to get the second half of this um, nearer to the end of the year. Uh, fingers crossed after the complaints, they do improve the animation a little bit. Because uh, really, you could probably do the animation on PowerPoint. You really could. Um, yeah. But outside of that, I still think it's funny enough for a watch. I'm going to give it a 6 out of 10. Um, which is lower than what we gave the manga, but still, mm-hmm. like worth a catch.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I basically echo everything you said. Like, it looks very cheap. It looks like a motion comic. Yeah. Uh, and you'd be better served just reading the manga. Uh, to cap off this episode of General Equality, I'm going to be talking about The Nevis, uh, the new TV show on HBO by Joss Whedon. Yep. Uh, this is the first series in more than a decade solely created by the man responsible for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, and Firefly. Mm-hmm. It's his first dance with premium cable after spending the earlier phase of his career working for broadcast networks with low budgets and executives with minimal faith in his ideas. Okay. Um, he spent the last 10 years directing comic book movies, uh, and it's, it's a return to the medium that made him a creative superstar. Uh, with a premise, you know, the premise is a host of superhuman women causes a stir in Victorian England uh, that kind of harkens back to familiar Buffy themes of female empowerment in a world run by bad men. Mm-hmm. Um What in theory should have been a neat and clean comeback narrative for Joss Whedon is in reality a big mess. In recent months, Whedon has been accused of abusive behavior uh, throughout his career by colleagues uh, that range from Justice League actor Ray Fisher to Angel's uh, Charisma Carpenter, who said, among other things, that Whedon uh, turned on her after she got pregnant, uh, and Buffy's Michelle Trachtenberg, who was a a, a teenager at the time uh, when they worked together, uh, and basically said that there was a rule instituted that Whedon was never allowed to be uh, alone in a room with her. Um, not because he was actually harassing her, but mostly because he just was a very abusive person. Like, he... Verbally scathing person, basically. Mm. Uh, just, just, just a bully in general. Um. So Whedon, before the Nevers, uh, ha- before the Nevers aired, had actually departed the show already. Uh, even before uh the allegations with Charisma Carpenter and the other Buffy alums um, surfaced, um, leaving the entire post-production process to be overseen by replacement showrunner Philippa Goslett. Uh, Whedon might once have been a huge selling point for a fantasy series like this one, where you know he is significantly more famous than anyone in the cast. So it, really, the the star of the show should have been him. Yeah. Um. A recent HBO press release, though, about the show, which I, I got, runs at nearly 600 words, mentions all the people involved, and Whedon ne- Whedon's name doesn't appear once. Well, right at the end. Like it mm-hmm. just says created by Joss Whedon, and that's it. You know. Uh, but he also directed two of the initial six episodes here. So it's um a problematic comeback for Joss Whedon, uh to say the least. Yeah. Uh, but even if even if Whedon still had the pristine cult icon image. Uh, from the turn of the century, uh, the Nevers would still, I think, be a disappointment. Um, it has many of the elements you expect from a Whedon show on a greater scale than any of the other older ones, mm-hmm. but some pieces only occasionally come to focus. Others leave you wondering why they're around at all. Um, this isn't unusual for Whedon. Um, you know, uh, a lot of Whedon shows, from Buffy to Angel to Dollhouse to Firefly, took, I would say, a season to get into gear. Yeah. Um. So it, it's you know like if Whedon was still Whedon I might still give, be giving this a chance you know knowing that you know it's probably going to ramp up later uh, but as it is it's tough because this is a this is a mess of a show that is totally awkward, incongruent um all the all the Whedonisms which have become. Uh, memes right now which have become easily parodied are yeah. uh, more obvious than usual uh, especially more obvious than back in the late 90s and early 2000s uh, when they were still fresh and new mm-hmm. uh, now I know that Whedon can only do one thing much like Aaron Sorkin can only do one thing so I mean like the Whedonism really goes to show the, the lack of uh, the lack of breath in terms of his creative vision you know he, he can only do that one thing the, the, the wayfish white uh, heroine mm. who, who, who beats up like Batman. Uh, that's it, you know. Um, it's it's just very difficult for me to get into the show, even if it had been perfect, which it is not, mm-hmm. you know. Uh even if I do know that Whedon generally requires like six to twelve episodes before his shows really get into like that great greatness atmosphere. Yeah. Um, it's now with his reputation, with how I feel about him personally, with like you know like the. Uh, the degradation or the the fall from grace of a, of a, of a hero figure that i kind of worship uh, earlier on in my in my life you know as like you know one of my favorite creators and writers of all time it really makes it difficult to watch the nevers without a tint uh on my lens you know mm-hmm. um like some aspects of the ne- of the nevers feel fully realized enough to compensate for the many missteps and uh, the bad taste in your mouth uh the action scenes are good um Particularly, there's a fight in the third episode that's incredible. Uh, but all in all, right? I I, I just feel like the the, show's, the the show just doesn't click because it feels tainted by the accusations against Whedon. You know, like mm-hmm. um, I think Buffy would be far from the first or the last important work of art to be created by a bad person. Yeah. Um, in this case, it's not so. It's not just like so many of the allegations against Whedon are recent, but so many of them fly in the face of his public persona as a, mm. as a champion of progressive feminist ideals, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's a lot harder to get behind those themes when it's wrapped around that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that's where, that's kind of where I fall with, the ne- with the Nevers. Like it's a five out of 10 show, you know? Uh, but well, wh- what it really crystallizes for me is, you know, it, it really takes the sheen of Whedon for me. Like in, in, in a way, like, uh, I'm not comparing Whedon to Chris Nolan, but you know, like how Tenet took the sheen of like, like oh, Chris Nolan can do no wrong from my yeah. eyes, you know, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, even going to the show, I'm, i I've already been like disillusioned with Joss Whedon, and then like trying to appreciate the show makes it even harder because the show is not perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, the show is a bit of a mess, and uh, not to say that the new showrunners are not going to get it back on track eventually. Yeah, but. I I just, like, I can't invest in this, man. I just can't invest in this, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, everything I've heard about Whedon, everything from his ex, uh, his ex-wife, uh, Ka- Kai Cole, who claims that uh, he, he confessed in a letter, okay, not a claim, because like, he actually wrote a letter confessing to her um, that she was, was published. Um, he confessed to having affairs with many of his female underlings in the Buffy days and, and stuff like that, you know, like, it's just mm-hmm. hard to take, like, feminist narratives seriously from Whedon going forward. Yeah. Uh, let alone any kind of narratives. So, yeah, that's... Man, that, that that's where I have fallen on the Nevis and and Joss Whedon. So I've had, I've been forced to reevaluate and kind of reckon with my Joss Whedon fandom. Yeah. Um I I I still feel like the stuff that he's done, like it's not like criminal, you know, per se. It's not like um, a Woody Allen or it's not like a Roman Polanski or it's not like a Harvey Weinstein, you know. Yeah. He's just a he's just a bully, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think I've come to a point in recent years where I feel like uh I no longer want to excuse uh, bad behavior just because of talent. Yeah. Like, does, 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 does being talented give you an excuse to be an asshole? Uh, even though you're doing nothing criminal, but you're still, like, not a good person, you know? Yeah. Like, I would say no. Uh, and it makes me a lot... It makes me a lot more reticent to appreciate your art in, in that sense. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, like, the cult of Joss Whedon is over for me, man. Mm. hmm mm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, have you ever had, like, any, like, a, a, like encountered, like, occasions like this, whether it be J.K. Rowe... Whether it be J.K. Rowling or something else,
1: I think for me a lot of that had to do with with musicians more than anything else, right? Like you hold some of these guys up on a pedestal because you grew up listening to their music and some and stuff like that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I, I I won't even do the justice of even naming any of them because like seriously, some of the things that that have come out have been have been just wrong like, and devastating for the for the victims um, mm. and, and so on and so forth. Um, We've had multiple kind of conversations about separating the art from the artist um, in our own personal talk, right? It's so oh. like yeah, we've, we've gone like to and fro with that for a while, and and I think my personal um, my personal kind of stance on it at the end of the day is that you're not some, some of these things unfortunately are only going to be found out after you've become a fan of the art. You know, uh, when people's personal lives leak into the public lives and so on and so forth, like eventually um, these things rise to the surface in one way or another, especially in the age of the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I found that um, in the past things, uh, much like you, right, things that I've thought were excusable, right, in the past, just because they were a talented person or they made good art or even, you know, simple things like art that I've enjoyed, right, regardless Mm -hmm. of the medium, it's become more and more difficult with that. And where I stand at this point in time is that sure I will enjoy a piece of art, but I would disassociate myself from, you know, um, if stuff like this gets out, right? Like it's 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 a lot easier for me now to review my fondness for that piece of art, um, yes. because I would like moving forward with my life to be able to support great art done by good people, right? Mm. Um, and as few and far as those may be. I I think that's kind of like the plumb line for me where I am in life right now, you know? And given like, you know, kind of the nature of the work that we do here at Genre Equality and then the nature of what you do, you know, um, as a writer, as Mm -hmm. a pop culture writer, um, it's it's the only, it's one of the few ways to kind of preserve your sanity um, while being part of a fandom, whether you like it or not, you know? Yep. Uh yeah. and, and so I fully agree with you on, on those kind of things, right? Like y- y- great talent doesn't excuse anything. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm hoping moving forward, you know, uh I I'm a lot more careful now, I think, with idolizing or or, or you know, like putting putting certain creators on a pedestal. I mean, like your work, but I mean like with the things that have come out over the last eight years or so. Um mm-hmm. It's very hard to have heroes that way right um to, that that won't ultimately disappoint you um mm. so yeah yeah um uh, it's an interesting kind of topic that I wish we had more kind of more time uh, or a different kind of platform which we don't have yeah. at the moment to to talk about and maybe even talk about with other people as well, but uh yeah, as far as it goes with like you know separating art and the artist, um that's mm. where I kind of stand right now. Um, yeah, but I'm glad. I'm glad you've you've worked, kind of worked through that. I I know you've been a huge Whedon fan for the longest time. Yeah, it's and primary when, school. Yeah. yeah, and when the news just kind of came out, like you know, I was mm-hmm. a little concerned um, yeah. how that would affect you. And I'm glad that um, that being able to reconcile that while um, approaching the Nevers as kind of a, a way to understand mm-hmm. that, uh, I'm, I'm glad you got the opportunity to do that because it, it's hard to do.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, like, you know, the allegations against Whedon, like the 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 majority of them like came out like just before the Nevers came out. So the the confluence of his new show and, and the allegations against him like kind of um stuck together like, and it's impossible to extricate yeah. one from the other. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so I mean like that, that's my thoughts on like, you know, uh my my I'm still a fan of Joss Whedon, I I would say, you know. I, yeah. I, I still like would watch Firefly like endlessly, like, rewatching, <laughs> um, and, and some of my favorite Buffy and Angel episodes as well, including Dollhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but going forward, right, with his new work, I don't think, like... It has to be really something special for me to, like, give it a shot again. La. Okay. Uh, I tr- I tried with The Nevers and I just couldn't get into it, you know. um, Even though, like, I know in my head that it's probably going to get better, but, like, you know, I'm just not going to... I don't give it the benefit of the doubt anymore, la, which is which is sad. La. And, you know, um, never... First of all, never meet your heroes and secondly like <laughs> your heroes eventually will live long enough to get torn down because you know Yeah. Yeah. Um which which always like makes me like uh infinitely more respectful of the of the genuinely good people uh making art. Yeah, you know, which is uh, to echo your sentiments, uh, like you know, follow good people who, who make good art mm-hmm. um but at the same time, you know, don't blindly think that they are perfect people. Yeah. Um if everyone um, has has uh, skeletons in their closet, and you need to like be uh, open to accepting uh, their faults if they come to light, yeah yeah um yeah and and that's basically my take on that We will be back uh next month in may uh with three new episodes, two beholds and one genre equality uh subsequently to this you know in a couple in, a, in next week we'll be talking about Latin American cinema where we'll be talking about city of God mm-hmm. wild tales Roma, um the episode next to that uh the new behold episode will be a non american gangster movie yeah. because I feel that um <laughs> if we were to talk about gangster movies uh you can't talk about gangster movies We're talking about American gangster movies, you know. Like yeah. All the topics we'll probably be talking about are like The Goodfellas, The Godfather, etc. You know? Like, most of the best gangster movies made, are made in America. But there are a lot of good gangster movies not made in America too, like Infernal mm, Affairs, yeah. uh, Varied, Instant Promises, Animal Kingdom. So, we thought we'll shine a, a light on that because American gangster movies really don't need a light shine upon them. Yeah. So popular already.
1: Yep, yeah, For sure. Yeah. For sure. I mean, like, honestly especially in the case of Infernal Affairs, like that easily rivals any gangster movie that's ever been made, right? Mm -hmm. American or not. So it's, I think it's important to kind of look at that. And to be fair, like it is, it is the source material for... The
0: Departed, The
1: Departed, right? So like, it would be super interesting. I'm looking forward to that episode to kind of like talk about all these things.
0: Oh, 100%. And John of 42 is going to be a jam-packed one. Yeah. I said a lot in his anime corner. Yeah. Plus, we'll be talking about Love, Death and Robots Season 2 and the final season of Castlevania. Uh, a new show by Barry Jenkins called The Underground Railroad mm-hmm. where he reimagines the metaphorical Underground Railroad, you know, the network of, uh, <laughs> uh, of people who, who help uh, fleeing uh, slaves uh, as a literal underground railroad like a steampunk reimagining of slavery era yep. which is fascinating uh and it comes from barry jenkins you know moonlight uh if bill street could talk the guy has n- n- never done anything wrong so yep. Sounds like it could be good. Uh, plus, we'll talk about Army of the Dead, which is Zack Snyder's new zombie movie, Adventure mm-hmm. Time's new episode, Jupiter's Legacy, Oxygen, Modoc, uh, Eden, Mitchell's Versus the Machine, uh, Nine Days, and, and, and a lot more, man. We've got a lot of stuff coming out yep. uh, uh, next month. So do tune in on our YouTube and Nextcloud channels. Like, follow, subscribe. Uh, press that bell for notifications. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to say before we leave off?
1: Uh no yeah I would love to love to get some support on YouTube as well if that is your platform of choice for listening to podcasts we just want to make sure that you know you guys get to listen um in the way that's most accessible and convenient to you right um, yeah yeah and we will see you in uh, in our next episode
0: yeah uh, behold next week so we'll catch you then till then this has been hit zero I'm Issa. uh one world one people goodbye
1: ciao.